Most 11-year-olds don't jump out of airplanes. Most families don't have life flight on speed dial, and most kids don't grow up on an airport. However, if you jumped out of an airplane over 5,000 times before you got your driver's license and lived long enough to watch each of your four brothers hit the dirt and live, you just might have a story. On today's episode, I welcome one of my good bros, Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Select Jeff Daryl Mullins, an F-18 Hornet pilot, skydiving ninja, Top Gun graduate, and former Blue Angel. We talk about the benefits of remembering to pull your parachute, lessons from being a new guy in combat, and what it's like behind the scenes as a Blue Angel, along with a cool story about SEAL Team 6 and Tom Brady. And then we finish it up with a little life lesson on how to not get hit by a car. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. Are you ready, bro? Ready to roll. All right, game on. We're here in Pensacola, Florida, at the home of one of my good buddies, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Callsign Daryl Mullins. Lieutenant Colonel Select, so he's kind of a big deal now. Completed four deployments that is a Marine Corps FA-18 Hornet pilot, also a skydiving instructor with over 8,000 jumps. Finished his last tour as a Blue Angel. He's now a dad and has a knack for running into moving vehicles while riding a bicycle. Daryl. Susan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Dude, thanks for making the time for this and the hospitality always. We are a traveling podcast, so it's good to be in Pensacola again. And uh, I'm supposed to hit the gym after this, but what is this? What bourbon is this? That is, I think, Woodford Double Oak. All right, so uh, a non-sanctioned promo. It's good bourbon. Anyway, well, let's get into it, man. Yeah. So the goal for this one, we had talked about, you did your cool stuff, wearing a tight blue flight suit, flying hornets around, and living in Pensacola, but uh, there was some cool stories along the way, and we're going to really anchor on your blues experience towards the end, but you didn't grow up in the Blue Angel flight suit. You got to do some other stuff before. So how'd you get into aviation, man? Well, um, you'd probably say I was born into it. So I have four brothers. We're all pilots. Oldest two are civilian airline pilots right now. One of them was in the Army National Guard as a helicopter pilot. Younger two brothers are actually Navy pilots. One's flying F-18s, one's flying T-44s right now. He's about to wing. And my dad was a Army warrant officer in Vietnam. Okay. And he was a pilot his entire life. He started flying when he was 16, started skydiving when he was 16, and actually grew up essentially on a drop zone, essentially skydiving every weekend. Um, of my four brothers and I, we all started skydiving around the time we were 11 years old. What's Is that legal? It is legal. Uh, what state is this in? Every state is actually legal. Is there, is there an age limit to start jumping out of an airplane? Nope. No kidding. I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, I'm not surprised. Somehow but. I lasted. Um, my brothers weren't so lucky. Oh, they're all alive. But of all five of us, I'm the only one who hasn't been life flighted. Everybody else has been life flighted? Yeah. Dude, that's uh That's the thing I hold over them is my ability to not get injured skydiving. Life flight, that's no joke. That's not a I got a bruise or a scratch. That's a impact that requires a helicopter. Yeah. They they're all good now though. They're all doing well. What'd your dad fly? He flew a, uh CH forty sevens. Yeah. Giant targets. Giant targets. In Vietnam. In Vietnam. Jeez. He got out, got his civilian ratings, uh, became an airline pilot, opened his his own drop zones forever. He's seventy six now, still flies tons of planes. But he was kind of, you know, I was born into essentially a flying family. So that was in the blood. That was in the blood. There was nothing else I was going to do. And there was a lot of things that skydiving taught me early on in life 
that I think really helped me out later on when I became a military Like pilot. what? Um, I mean, to start off, it's all on you. You're jumping on a plane by yourself. So when you were 11, hang on, backing up. Your first jump, are you tandem? Nope, by myself. Solo. Solo. As 11. Yep. So what grade are you in? Seventh, maybe sixth. No, dude. If you're 11 in seventh grade, you're an overachiever. You're you're in like fifth grade, man. No, I think it was in uh, seventh or sixth grade. No, you're 14 as an eighth grader, average. You're 15 as a freshman. So you're in fifth or sixth grade. Uh, I can't remember what grade I was in. Okay. So maybe the schools work differently in the South. I don't know. <laughs> Holy cow, dude. Uh, but yeah, I started young, uh, you know, but it taught me a lot in terms of, well, one, it was just, it was a cool experience. It's something super unique as a kid you got to do, but it, it, it taught me a lot as a child about, you know, holding myself accountable because I was the only one responsible, you know, for what happened. Yeah, if you screw it up, guess who dies? Yeah, me. And also, um, you know, because there's this awesome hobby my dad allowed us to get into, you know, it was all how you, how good you wanted to be at it. I could, you know, just, Go do jump out of a plane over time, or I can try to get better every single time and be great, good at it. What makes a one skydiver better than another? I mean, same thing as being a pilot, you know, just situational awareness, the ability to understand what's going on around you, the ability to land a parachute. And I don't say by just landing a parachute, um, you can get it, look into it, but you know, there's these things called high performance landings where you essentially you put the parachute into a super fast dive, pull out of it the last second, go across the ground around 70, 80 miles an hour. And that's kind of a competition, see how far or fast you can go. And that's where, that's, I remember you told me this a while back, that's if dude screwed up at that part of the flight, that's where they die. Yeah. And now, you know, that was the other thing as a kid that I wouldn't say it's a fortunate thing to see, but the realization, I was unfortunate enough to see several of my friends hit the ground and, real, and learn from that and realize again, hey, this is all on you. It's what you make of it and you're responsible for what you do. So, Early on, it taught me something I like to say is do dumb things safely. You know, you could say jumping out of a plane and going really fast and trying to go as fast as you can and close to the ground is pretty dumb. But there's a safe way to do it where it's fun and acceptable and you can do really cool things when you kind of like look at it like, hey, how can I do this without hurting myself? Do you remember what your dad told you before your first jump, if anything? I don't think he told me anything. He was just like, I think he said, just go jump out of the plane. I was the third one. I was the middle child, third one by that time. And was... uh. Who was jumping with you? Were your older bros jumping with you? It was my oldest brother. He was my instructor. Okay. so And you, you can imagine learning from your oldest brother is oh, not the most be, pleasant that's experience. That's got to be fun. Yeah. That's got to be fun. 11 years old, and you got over 8,000 jumps now. So you started jumping out of planes before you started flying planes? Well, before. I you know, I, I had four or 5,000 jumps before I started flying a plane. When did you start flying? I was 15. Okay. It was little Cessna 152s. You know, little slow things, but if you look back on they're actually pretty fun to fly. Yeah, they're actually fun Just to fly. Just looking outside, flying yeah. around. And the, did you end up flying for your dad's company? I didn't at the time. So he's a, uh, he likes doing it all himself. He likes flying on the planes and plus they're expensive toys. He doesn't want to trust to, you know, a 18, 19 year old to fly around. Yeah. So I just, I've learned how to fly in high school and college and I really didn't do much flying besides getting my ratings, you know, basic ratings that you would get. And then I went to college from there. I mean, the aviation's in the blood. Your whole family's doing it. Your oldest brother, so you're number two out of four? Three out of five. You're three out of four. Three out of five. Three out of five. Okay. And you're the only one that hasn't been life flighted. What did your other deep bros get life flighted for? Obviously, if it's skydiving related, I can take a guess. They hit the ground pretty hard. Oh, my gosh, dude. So is there a sky, I mean, is life flight on speed dial at your dad's place? You know, I never had to be a part of that. I assume it is. I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody knows the number, but 
I, I think you just call the ambulance and they know if it's the drop zone. It's hey, we're going over to the Mullins yeah. house. Another one of the kids hit the hit the dirt. <laughs> Shit, man. Uh, and dude. overall, though, it's, it's a pretty safe thing. It's when you get to kind of the extremes of of what you're doing in the sport. Any sport, really, if you get to the extremes of it, that's where you have people make mistakes. That so it was when you started getting into the more high-performance landings rather than just jump out, fall, pull the chute. And For most of my brothers, when they got hurt, that's what happened. It was something performance-related. Something performance-related. I'm trying to do something high-performance. What was the... Gosh, this is gnarly, man. 11 years old. When did you start mixing it up and getting away from your traditional kind of, I guess, casual jump? And start doing stuff that's a little more creative? Probably when I was 13. Okay, so two years in? Yeah, two years in. But I was jumping a lot. You know, it's all I was doing. How many jumps a day do you normally do? 10 to 20. A lot. Jeez. But it was fun. It taught me a lot as a kid. And it taught me a lot that I think, um, not just in like seeing what everything you do is Mm -hmm. up to you, but also just understanding how things work when you're moving really fast through the air, which translates to being a fighter pilot later down the line. So when someone you hear today now after your career says, Hey, I'm scared of skydiving or I don't want to jump out of a plane or I see no point to it. What do you say to them? I mean, that's fair. Yeah, totally. So it's not for everyone. It's a fair argument. Yeah. 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 Okay. But the benefits that you talk about the, the accountability you're in charge, all that stuff. Those are valuable lessons that they, they are, but there's also other ways a kid can get that. You know, I was just fortunate to get that as a kid. Sure. Um, there was another sport that I did as a kid, and, and this is kind of what I, I would base a lot of my talks on as Blue Angel. There's two things in my, my childhood that really formed my ability to um, hold myself accountable and, and grow as an individual with skydiving, for what I just talked about, and actually wrestling. I was about to ask that, man. Sports. A, a lot of the same reasons. You're out there by yourself. It's all on you. There's a lot of discipline associated with it because you're cutting weight. You have to make weight. And if you don't, you've got no one else to blame but yourself. And then you have to go out on a mat and perform against somebody one-on-one and, and try to beat them. What did you wrestle at? What weight? 152, 152 pounds. That's a, that's a tough weight, man. And I didn't come from a very good, strong wrestling state. But uh, at the time, that was a tough weight class. And I started as a disadvantage. Not only am I not coordinated at all in any way, shape, or form. True. Although, you know, I can hit somebody. You and I have had many little scraps yeah, yeah. Uh, for fun. <laughs> um, I didn't start wrestling until I was a junior in high school, which is pretty late in the game to start mm-hmm. it. Mainly because when I was younger, I was skydiving so much. I didn't want to do anything else. What made you want to get into wrestling? Uh, actually, football. I played football for one season. Didn't get to go on the field once in a team that wasn't very good. I wasn't a very good football player to start off with. Okay. But I wanted to go do something that I knew that it was up to me to prove myself and and show what I can do, and it was all on me to, to do that. That's cool. So skydiving and wrestling. Makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. And then eventually, you're skydiving, you're skydiving, you're skydiving. You finish up high school. Somehow, you got introduced to the Marine Corps. I did. How so did that happen? Roundabout way. Um, I think I like a lot of people. Um, on the other hand, I always knew I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to go in the military and fly fighters. I didn't know exactly how I wanted to do it. And I started off probably the wrong way at least in my opinion, what what fit me. So I applied to both the Air Force Academy and Naval Academy three times. So junior, senior year, high school, freshman year, college, didn't get any of those. I also at the time got a Air Force ROTC scholarship to college. And I took that because I was like, okay, cool. Air Force has fighter jets. I can go fly fighter jets in the Air Force. The ROTC scholarship required me to be some sort of technical major. And I'm not very good at technical stuff, 
but I, for some reason, chose uh, physics as my major. Way to go. At Middle Tennessee State University. <laughs> Tennessee State physics major. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and calculus didn't go so well for me. But what really turned me off was actually the Air Force ROTC unit. Just in terms of what I saw, and I didn't, I didn't really like what I was seeing from the mm-hmm. Air Force culture. Uh, and it came down to, you know, even just some of the silly things as, phys- as the physical training, the PT that we had to do as an Air Force ROTC student. Uh, I was wrestling at their club team. I was playing rugby and I still had to go like at these five o'clock, you know, very weak physical training sessions where we played basketball, do these other things. I was like, this is a waste of my time that, and there was no guarantee I would fly. Okay. So at the first, since I was on scholarship after my first year, I'd have to essentially contract. And if I dropped out, I have to pay back my scholarship or enlist. And I didn't like the idea of no guarantee. At the t- I saw a Marine Corps flyer for a Marine uh, PLC platoon as their course, and I was like, that's what I want to do. I also had a friend who was about four or five years ahead of me who was in flight school who did it. And I was like, okay, cool, guaranteed flight slot. I'll take that instead. What it also allowed me to do was get to the fight. So this was 2005, mm-hmm. and I, Iraq was pretty hot at the time. This was, you know, Fallujah. Fallujah, yeah. Uh, I think it was OIF2, I guess, was going on. Um, and I wanted to get to the fight. So I did one semester, two semesters at MTSU. I switched to Embry-Riddle Online. And because I had the Marine Corps PLC contract, I could just rush through college. And I kind of gained my way through, um, through college. So I went to Embry-Riddle Online after MTSU. And I was able to figure out a way to essentially finish college in about 20 months total. I remember this. Yeah. And um, I remember hearing about this Mullins guy in uh, in flight school and everybody thought you were some super genius because you got through college so fast now we're learning it's not the case i i just know how to game you scammed your way through mb riddle online no i I love it but it was we i remember hearing from you know buddies of ours like this mullins dude is zipping through the program he finished college in two years they thought you were some whiz kid genius pilot ninja guy so it's all it's all coming out in the wash now yeah, it was all just game in the game. I was like, oh, this is what I have to do. This is the minimum requirements. Yeah. Uh, you can count my flying towards half of these. Cool. And so I was able to commission, commission when I was 19 in 2006 and got in the Marine Corps. And again, the whole reason I wanted to go through so quickly is, you know, at the time I thought the wars were going to be over soon. And I wanted to go experience combat, go, you know, drop bombs and blow stuff up. I grew up in high school during 9-11 and I wanted to go get into the fight, and I thought it was going to be over soon. So I kind of rushed through college to get to that fight. Okay. So you got Hornets. I did. All right. And then flight school, good times. But you got Hornets. But you got to, when you got to the fleet, you selected F-18s, and then you got to go to 122, VMFA 122, right? That's right. Yeah. Now what? Because that, that was, I remember this. This was 2010, 2009. Uh, mid-2010. Mid-2010. Okay. So I, I got to Buford in December 2010. And 122 was going out the door to Kandahar. Is that right? That's right. So they were going to Afghanistan and replacing 232. And 232 was having very connected deployments. So they were dropping a lot of bombs. Afghanistan was in the middle of the surge. So the, the 2008 to 2010 surge where they were really plussing people up. Marja, Sangin were very hot. And 232 and the Marine squadrons were essentially doing what Marine squadrons do. They were integrating very well with the Marines on the ground. That's solely who they were supporting. So I show up two months before deployment, and originally I had orders to VMFA AW 533, 
from the rag. I was going to two seat squadron. I wanted to go to a boat squadron. And the main reason I wanted to go to a boat squadron is because I thought they're the only ones going to combat. I wanted to go to combat. So I have orders 533, 2C Squadron. I know they're not going to combat a lot these days because they did a lot of stuff in Iraq. But I show up, I check in, and I check into the uh, MAG PSD. So he's the guy who places people in the squadrons, and it's a guy named Gump Ferris. He's a VMFA 115CO. Great guy. Uh, who, he's like who you'd picture as a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel that leads a squadron. And I walk into his office to check in, and he's going to tell me where I'm going. And he looks at me and goes, Hey, you ready to go to war? I'm like, yes, sir. I am. He's like, okay, you're going to 122 instead. Nice. And that's about the length of discussion. Okay. So you get to 122. They're heading out the door in two months. They are. Yeah. What was the culture like at 122 when you showed up as a brand new guy? I mean, it was a great culture. It's what you expect of a you know a single seat fire squadron, but uh, the the expectations were high. They had a lot of high performers. All the second tour captains were exceptional leaders and, and they held people to standards, but they are also very good at teaching people to get to those standards. The uh, CO, the OPSO, the XO were all great guys. The CO was a little bit um, hard to read, but it, you know, in hindsight, he, he was a lot better than we thought we, you know, he was when we were, you know, sitting at the bottom of the ladder. When you look back, when you're a brand new guy yeah, showing up. Yeah. yeah. But the, the training officer, and the, the PTO or the PT, yeah, the training officer and the OPSO, they, they wanted everybody to be in the fight when we got there. Mm-hmm. They wanted everybody to contribute. Uh, when I showed up, a lot of people thought I was just going to ride the desk the entire time. My call sign was actually Dodo to start off with. Yeah, a flightless bird. Flightless bird. Flightless bird. But also, uh, as call signs go, an acronym. Okay. Deployed ODO. Deployed ODO. Deployed ODO. Nice. So they thought <laughs> I would ride the desk. But I showed up. They spooled me up, and all I did was air-to-ground stuff. That's all I did over and over again for two months. And I got a lot of flight time. Um, and this is kind of where the whole team aspect goes into it. There are a lot of guys who are in front of me whose flight time suffered because they were spooling me up to get out the door. And that kind of shows you how sometimes squadrons have to sacrifice some resources here to get somebody spooled up. And you always have to appreciate when that happens yeah. and recognize it, which sometimes it's hard to do when you're in the moment. I got you. So did you, when you guys got to, so you operate out of Kandahar. We did. Call sign maker. Maker. Yeah. I remember. So you remember, do you remember picking the call sign? Do you remember how that went? Man, as the FNG. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> out of it. You I forget had, it, dude. They're not asking you for your opinion. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. So I did had you no feel input. prepped? Did you feel ready when you got there? I mean, two months of just dedicated air to ground before you get there. Close air support missions. How did it feel when you got there, man? Well, getting there, I mean, the base itself is pretty surreal because it's in the middle of Afghanistan, which is a super hot war zone at the time. But Kandahar itself is just this weird coalition base that's very far removed. I mean, there's a thing called the boardwalk on it with all these, I think there's a TGI, all this crazy stuff. And our ADVON, so our advanced party that got there, you know, this is the kind of the environment we're showing them to do. They landed in their C-17 and like rockets hit 300 meters away from them. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying this was anywhere near dangerous as guys who were yeah, out yeah. there past the wire. But this very weird base that held these crazy nice amenities would occasionally get rocketed. Mm-hmm. And the guys who were showing up to start it experienced that firsthand within minutes of them arriving. So, you know, we didn't know what to expect. I show up. And one of my first experiences is me and my friend, uh, the other new guy, he's about a month senior to me. We're working out and like 
get rocketed and we don't know what's going on because this alarm goes off. We're like, so should we keep working out? What does that mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Cool. The gym's going to clear out now. We can, yeah. Yeah. But uh, in terms of the flying, um, it the flying itself, once you got with the JTAC, just seemed like training. It seemed like being on the range. What's a JTAC, Daryl? So Joint Terminal Air Controller. I think it's what attack you, controller, attack controller. Joint terminal attack controller. So uh, there's my first fail right there. There you go, fail, fail. It's what you are. Right? I know, correct, correct. Yeah. That's all right. But so you guys had a different, and from what I heard, and just because we had followed you guys through the deployment from Buford, hey, keep an eye on 122 is up to you, the whole thing. And you guys did something that was a little bit different, but very, very Marine Corps-like, where you would contact the JTAC before you guys even took off, right? Yeah, so we would get daily emails from them. But we wouldn't just look at the email. We'd give, give them a phone call. Yeah. And but was, who are the JTACs you guys are working with? They're mostly Marines, but you, you, but you also worked with other services. So we worked with other services, but 90% of our missions were the Marines. And we were on a call sign basis. Not like their regimental call sign or the battalion call sign, but their actual call sign basis with those guys. And some of those guys, the, 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 um, the second tour captains... Mm-hmm. You know, they went for flight school with. They were in squadrons with. So the JTACs and the FACs were, were also pilots, guys that guys in your squadron knew. So you're working with buddies. You're working with, you know, peers that were doing a ground tour with a Marine Infantry Battalion or, you know, some type of ground unit. So you guys had a first-name basis, essentially, with these guys. You did. And not only that, the relationship continued because you get back to Buford, and those guys check back into the fleet later. And you run into them, you're like, oh, you're man, yeah, I dropped bombs for you. I worked with you. This is, you get to know them. And they, yeah. then they get to put a face to the name and they realize how dumb you are. And they're like, <laughs> I let you drop bombs for me. Uh, what? Do you remember your first nine line? I do. So how long before you got the green light to go actually fly? So I think I flew at the end of the first week. Okay. Which is pretty quick. And I flew with our CO. And the entire flight was a, just terrible for me. Uh, until we got to the cast deck, just all the admin associated with combat, all the comm checks you don't really do, you know, when you're in training, all the different controlling agencies. I was like, what is going on? Disaster. And the worst part about it is I got a new call sign out of it coming home because I was getting ATIS for this. I was off the back radio getting ATIS for the CO as we're coming into Kandahar. And he comes up, I switch back. He's like, give me ATIS. And I start reading him ATIS. He's like, just give me the identifier which is, you know, the letter, which you're yeah. supposed to check in with. So real quick, that's the weather. The weather. ATIS is the weather. So Daryl was off comms getting the weather, and he was supposed to report the identifier, which to explain is just, hey, the weather's good. It's weather Bravo or weather Charlie. So all you had to remember was a single letter, right? That's right. So take it away. How'd it go? So I wrote it down. I wrote everything down. You wrote down the letter. And I uh, started <laughs> reading him the weather. He goes, I don't need the weather. Just give me the letter identifier <laughs> I, go, I can't read my handwriting <laughs> no, dude. okay so i get i get a call sign atis from that point dude so you had two call signs before you even i mean you're two weeks into deployment yeah you're a success story so atis and then what happened after that so the next flight um i'm flying with actually a guy who i looked up to a lot and was kind of one of my inspirations for rushing the blue angels later in my life because he became a blue angel from that deployment and we're flying and I don't remember the situation. It was a pretty, uh, I think vanilla. It was just some guys in a compound tree line shooting. No one was taking, you know, they were taking fire, but it wasn't urgent. 
And so he, I laid in a GB12 for him into a compound or to a tree line south of the compound. And then after that, I followed up with a gun run. And to me, I was like, oh man, I'm doing this. But again, it just seemed like back on the training range because if I had such good training from those two months and the guys holding me to a high standard that when I got onto target and it was time to drop bombs or laze in bombs and shoot rounds onto a building, that just seemed like training, except there was real world consequences attached to that. So did you, did you even get spooled up when you heard standby for nine line on the radio? Oh yeah. I got spooled up. It was, how, how was that? I was just like, Oh, well this is happening. I need to get ready right now. Uh, and I probably had a pretty elevated heart rate for a little bit. Yeah, heart rate goes up. But again, you just fall back on what you're trying to do and, and execute. It's interesting hearing guys' different stories about their first attack or their first nine line. And some of them don't remember thinking, which is, if you really dig into that, it makes sense. If you've been trained and you go into just instinct and you go into muscle memory, where all the decisions are essentially Made in advance. If I hear this comm call, I execute this. If this situation develops, I execute this. So do you remember thinking? I can't remember that far back about what it was like. I remember the targets. I can tell you what the building looked like and the tree line and how we attacked it. But no, I actually don't remember what I was thinking at the time. I remember copying it down. I remember using the iPad we had to correlate the target. I remember lazing it in, but... As far as what was going through my mind, it just seemed like it's time to get to work. So you just did. You I just, just did. Executed. Got it, man. So that was your first, the one that you remember. Was there any other attacks that were memorable that stick out when you guys think about that deployment? So there's a couple. Uh, a couple from my own buffoonery. Sure. Um, yeah, or I would say buffoonery or incompetence. Okay. And, and one of those is I was with one of our very senior pilots. He was our AMO at the time. We're up in Kajaki, which there weren't a lot of people on the ground in Kajaki. So a lot of it was controlled from a distance. There was nobody there to laser bombs or give you talk-ons. The comms were very spotty. It was very hard to kind of get a talk-on. And again, this is probably two or three weeks into it. And we get a nine line, and then he's going to drop a GBU-38 bomb on coordinate which is a gps guided bomb gps guided bomb so he's going to put the coordinates in the bomb's going to go there and the jtac wants me to drop a gbu 12 which Which is a sorry go ahead daryl take a laser guided (laughs) there we go but he wants me to drop it bomb on coordinate Mm -hmm. and the thing that kind of flagged in my mind was i need somebody to lay this lay this bomb on for me if it's gonna be bomb on coordinate or i need to talk on i Approached that with the flight lead. I was like, hey, I can't drop this bombing. He's like, no, just enter your system, whatever appears in your pod, so your targeting pod when you designate it, just lays it into that. Didn't sound right to me, but again, new guy, I'd go along with it. Lays this bomb into a compound. It hit 100 meters off, but it dudded, which is a good and a bad thing because no one who didn't, no one who wasn't supposed to get hurt got hurt, right? But our Marines actually had to go out and find that bomb and blow it up because they didn't want a 500-pound bomb sitting in a random compound. Becoming an IED for future days. Yeah. yeah. And training officer reviewed the video. When I got back, he listened to the comms. He's like, hey, man. I was like, yeah, I, I know. this. I didn't think it was right either. I just, he's like, well, you need to hold yourself accountable for that. You need to speak up more. You need to be what we trained you to be, a guy who can go operate it by himself he, he needs to and drop bombs in combat. 
So that was a big lesson learned from one to, to drive my own aircraft and, and, and make sure I'm employing right. But two, you got to give people the ability to learn from their mistakes and grow. And the environment that that training officer set allowed that to happen. I can see in another squadron or another time, somebody getting pulled from the flight schedule for good. Wait, so let's dig into that a little bit. Cause that's a key, his approach to your mistake allowed you the ability to grow. It did. Yeah. And luckily the circumstances were one, it was nobody else, no friendlies. There was no fratricide, nothing. Nobody died, but you had a, you misemployed the weapon. So, but his approach to your mistake was, uh, I would say constructive. And how did you react to that approach afterwards? I mean, from there, I just realized, you know, just because the flight lead says one thing, he might not have all the essay. He might not be processing going on because he's trying to lead the entire the section. He's trying to drive the fight. He might miss something or just gloss over it without realizing the consequences. But it, it drove home a learning point that like, hey, I am responsible for the bombs that come off my aircraft, which I mean, everybody should be responsible for the bombs coming off your aircraft. Sure. <clears throat> but that as a wingman, you have the authority to speak up and communicate what doesn't look right and what looks right. Yep, definitely. So that's a big lesson learned, man. Early in the deployment. Did you get a chance to reflect on that experience real time where a situation popped up where it's like, hey man, I'm not doing this or this isn't right and you held your ground based on the lesson you learned from that experience? So fortunately, that didn't come up for the rest of the deployment. Now, later in, later in my training in the fleet and even when I went to combat in, in Operation uh, Inherent Resolve, situations came up similar to that. But at the time, I, like, I would say I lucked out where I didn't have to rely on that learning point again because rest of employments were pr- fairly smooth. I would say smooth in terms of everything went correctly. Bombs blew up when they, supposed to, when they were supposed to blow up. So you said you got to, you did a gun run on your first, like in your first mission or in your first actual, uh, within the first couple of weeks of getting there, you did a gun run? I did. So I lazed my flight leads bomb into a tree line and then I followed it up with a gun run into the building that was just north of the tree line. That was on my second flight in country. A gun run. Yep. Dude, that's gnarly. And on top of that, this is in Marja. <laughs> the boat was not happy. So the carrier that was supporting Afghanistan at the mm-hmm. time was not happy because their section of F-18s was also working over Marja. Mm-hmm. And the battalions had almost overlapping airspace. So as I'm pushing over for my gun run, a hornet goes flying through my HUD because I'm actually pushing through his cast stack because the JTAC didn't deconflict with the JTAC to the south of him with a different battalion. Oh, that's a that's an other. So all the boat squadrons know is some these Marine Corps some rogue pilot from 122 is zipping through the cast stack. Yeah. Okay, that's a geez, that's a lot of learning going on right there. A lot of opportunities to learn very quickly. Holy cow. Man, that so gun run, that is a that's an elevated level of focus. That's significant. What do you remember about the gun run? I remember actually being easier than in training. Uh, mainly because all the extra airspace I had that I got to push through that cast stack. Yeah, you, weren't, you weren't worried about airspace? I wasn't worried about airspace. <laughs> so all my gun runs in training, I only had a couple because I didn't have a lot of time. They were at Towns and Range, which is just the south of Buford. It's in Georgia. 
And it's very restrictive of where you can go. The, the targets are these very small targets that are hard to see, hard to pick up with your eyes. You can pick them with your pot. But now I'm strafing a compound that I can very well see. So I was like, okay, cool. I got this. I have plenty of time to push over, shoot. Now, once you go on the trigger and you're close and you're coming off target, that's a different story. I was like, okay, this is really happening. And it was a bit, um, I, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, that was fun. That yeah. was that was up close and personal. I mean, some guys, that's it's crazy. Some guys go a whole career without ever, some without ever employing uh, a weapon. And then the amount of dudes I've met that have actually employed a gun in combat, at least, it's a smaller number. There's not a lot of people, and, you know, based on different, you know, theater restrictions and things like that. Uh, but on your second flight, you got to do a gun run. I did. I mean, I was lucky in terms of timing. Dropping bombs and shooting the gun in combat, from my deployments, they're all very, I would say, benign deployments. You know, stuff's going on, but no one's shooting back at me, so it's very easy to focus on it. You know, there are other guys who did some very serious work. Yeah. And we used the gun a lot because it had low collateral damage estimate, CDE. Mm-hmm. It's the last, you probably know better than me if that's oh, yeah, it's, it's a little rusty, but yeah, CDE. So because it's a direct fire weapon and doesn't have a lot of, you know, explosive frag or blast, you can employ it, one, closer to civilians or people who you may not want to hurt, but also closer to friendlies. So that's why it's a was a preferred weapon in Afghanistan. Got it. That makes sense. So you lessons learned from Kandahar, man. There was a lot of them. But that deployment you guys executed pretty well. That was a, was there any big takeaways from, I mean, your first deployment, you show up to the fleet, you got two months to prep, you go to Kandahar with VMFA-122, successful, but also very, I mean, it was a very kinetic deployment. Uh, one of the things that, that I thought was super cool and we talked about it earlier was that the comms with the Ford Air Controllers and the JTACs that you guys did, and just building that relationship with the guys on the ground, so they knew when it was call sign maker on the radio, they knew it was 122 coming from Kandahar. And you guys had established a rapport with them. And did that help you guys uh, when it came to actually executing missions? It definitely did. Because, again, we're working with the same guys every single day. It was almost the same flow with the same battalions with the same JTACs. And they knew our call sign. The Air Force, they use a lot of the same call signs over and over again. Like every F-15E squadron is dude. The F-18s off the boat all have the same call signs almost. So they knew exactly who they were getting. They knew the the uh, credibility we'd established them early on, besides my buffoonery, but it was transparent to them on the ground. We did a lot of good work from early on, so they had a lot of trust. Nice, um, man. What was What's one big takeaway from that deployment you took? Because this is early on. You're still a rookie, dude. I mean, you're not even a year in the fleet. I haven't even flown at night. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the, the biggest lesson... Um, is train to a standard and trust your people at lower level, at the lowest level. And those are two takeaways I'd actually took throughout my entire career. So I showed up, they trained me to the standard they wanted me to be at, and they trusted me to employ. To the point that, you know, a month in deployment, we're doing split section ops. So I could be 100 miles away from my flight lead, and I'm trusted to talk to the JTAC, to assess the situation, and employ ordinance correctly and on time if needed to the point i remember a, a great one one of the one of the ones that stands out the most um i was in the northwest of 86 charlie hotel which is a kill box where sangin's in the southeast of that so i get sent to like the the chill part my flight lead was over sangin uh and we both got nine lines we both ended up dropping bombs he bingoed off i checked in and it quieted down and then it spools back up and i end up doing a gun run and going home 
and the level of trust it took to say, hey, you go over to your corner, you kill bad guys if it's needed, and I trust you to do that. You weren't a wingman. No. No qualifications to lead a flight. I mean, you're you're straight up brand new greeny. I haven't flown on MNGs. <laughs> I haven't flown at night since I got the fleet. Oh, gosh. I haven't done any BFM or air-to-air. I haven't even finished my air-to-ground syllabus, I think, or done lat. I literally showed up, and they just trained me to get to combat. Smart. Smart. Really, there's not enough time to do anything else. No, they, they essentially took the TNR. They said, hey, this is what we kind of want to do, but we need to make him able to employ bombs in two months. So you were split-section ops, which what that means is uh, Daryl here was alone and unafraid doing his own thing while his flight lead was alone and unafraid doing his thing. That's a ton of responsibility, man. That's really cool. Good stuff. So you got back from 122. You did a couple more years with them, right? Did you do another Westpac, or what did you, you do with uh, 122 after that deployment? I did. Um, this is actually in the, I would almost say, the famine times of the Marine Corps. So you and I both kind of grew up in the same time. And this is when the first round of sequestration hit and funding kind of hit everybody. Flight hours dropped off. And it was kind of rough times with maintenance, getting aircraft flying. We did a Westpac deployment to Japan. And because of funding, we kind of just sat in Iwakuni, Japan the entire time. Mm-hmm. There was flying, not a lot, um, but there was also a lot of learning going on. So I progressed through my flight, or my flight loop calls, got my division lead, and I, I, I spent my entire time in maintenance. So I was, I was the assistant maintenance officer, I was the airframes division officer, and I was quality assurance officer my, my first tour. And I got a lot of time leading Marines, but also watching the leaders above me react and how they handled things. And the CEO at the time probably taught me more how to not handle situations than he did. Yeah, you can learn from both good and bad leaders. So there's always opportunities to learn, not just to, you know, oh, I don't like how this guy's doing it, so whatever. You can take that and you can figure out, well, why did he do that? How would I do it? What would be the consequences? And there was, there was many opportunities on my second deployment, which is a deployment to Japan to learn not how to lead and and kind of develop how I wanted to be when I came back to the fleet later. Okay, good stuff. So learning all over the place. Yep. So you got back. Now this is a fun story. So you finished up 122 and then you go to EWS, Expeditionary Warfare School. One of the just greatest inventions in Marine Corps history. What'd you do on the weekends at EWS, Daryl? I went skydiving. <laughs> so, dude, t- tell our, our studio audience what EWS is briefly. So it's professional military education. It's where O1s, O2s, O3s, so first lieutenant, second lieutenant, captains, go to learn how to be a major, to be learn how to be a hinge or a field grade officer. And it's a, it's a ton of fun, right? You know, it was, uh, it was a lot of banging your head against the wall. It was... It was a lot of downtime. It was oh, a lot yeah. of not working. So you did skydiving on the weekends, but you instructed, right? Yeah. I mean, it was solely as a, a, a means to have a little fun and make a little extra income. Yeah. yeah. I jumped on the weekends and, and worked out. That was about it. Hung out with my wife. That's good living. But and then you got back. I did. What did you check into when you got back? So this is a, another big life lesson that I learned coming back. One, about timing. Timing has always beneficial, but two, uh, I would 
a, a my former MAGCO at the time, who was at the Pentagon, told me to bloom where I was planted. I originally had orders to VMFA W, sorry, VMFA. I'm going to guess here real quick. Interruption. Was this Crusoe Robinson? No. Before him? After him. Homie. Homie. Homie Cedar Home. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. But he, he told me that. And the story about it, he told me that is not a good story on my part. So I, uh, I mean, it's a funny story. I asked him for a letter, letter of recommendation because I was rushing the blues while I was EWS. And he and I were exchanging emails back and forth because he was at the Pentagon. I knew him pretty well from my time at MAG31 when he was the CEO. I mean, we fished him a bunch. We oh, yeah, played totally. crud together. Totally. And yeah, crud story. You and I battled. Good crud story. That was a good one. Okay. Body check into a pinball machine? Yeah, it was a pinball machine. We almost knocked it over. Yeah. But I might have gotten a little too comfortable in the emails back and forth and referred to him as homie. And he, what rank was he at the time? He was a Marine Corps colonel. Got it. At the Pentagon. And he asked me to come see him about his rec- my recommendation to the Blues. And I knew at that point, the way the email was worded, it was not like a, hey, I just want to BS. It's, hey, I don't need to talk to you about something. And I show up. I didn't, I didn't have to go, but I showed up to the Pentagon, put on my chucks, my service uniform. And he had all the emails printed out with highlighted every time I called him by his call sign. And I don't put this as a bad reflection on him. He, he just, you know, this young captain getting a little too informal with him, which I completely understand. But he just kind of used it as a lesson learned. And we talked about where I was going. And I said, you know, I'm going to 533. I was originally slated to go to 115. And... I knew the training officer at 115, and he had a Top Gun slot for me. Something I really wanted to do. There was three things I wanted to do in the Marine Corps. One of them I thought was not attainable. I wanted to go to combat and blow things up. I wanted to go to Top Gun. I wanted to be a Blue Angel. The last one I thought would never happen. And I thought the second one was lined up. Well, it gets changed to 533 because they just need a division lead for the next deployment. It wasn't they wanted me to come be their next training officer and go to Top Gun. We just need a body. And so I was kind of down about that. And I was talking to him about it. He goes, hey, bloom where you're planted. If you go and do well, you'll make opportunities for yourself. So go bloom where you're planted, integrate into a 2C squadron, and be a good 2C pilot. And I tried to take that to heart getting to 533. Okay, so backing up, man. How was the conversation about all the emails and your informal Captain Mullins talking to Colonel Cedar home at the Pentagon. It was actually very quick. Okay. He, so he, what was his delivery? He just had the emails printed out, them highlighted. And he goes, do you want to explain to me why you think this is acceptable? Ooh. And I said, sir, I messed up. I thought we were a bit more informal than we were. And I completely understand so why no, that's not th- acceptable. I mean, he said it all in a question. Yes. Any questions, Daryl? Nope. No, sir. Got it. And then it was just right on from that. Like nothing totally. happened. Totally. Which, from a leader's perspective, is a, a way to enforce something, make sure the person learned the lesson, and just move on. He put you back in your lane, and then immediately, hey, it's over with. Moving on. Yeah. Quickly. Nice. Nicely done. And then he gave me some very sound advice on how to succeed in, when I get back to the fleet. What did you notice about two-seat squadrons, vice single-seat squadrons? Well, the first thing I noticed was how conservative they were. So I checked in, and our CO, our XO, I believe our ops at the time are all Wizzos, so weapons system officers. They're the guys who sit in the backseat, goose, if you will, if you watch Top Gun. 
And it almost seemed, and I don't know if it was all TC squadrons. And I don't think it was, but this one was very, very conservative at the time. And it drove me crazy. And I, I look at it, I always look at things in hindsight and see the positives. We had very low flight hours. We weren't flying a lot. So maybe that's what was needed at the time for guys who weren't flying a lot. But at the time, it drove me crazy. Uh, for example, you know, 122, as a new guy, I was dropping bombs myself. When we get back from deployment, if we're supporting close air support frags, where we were tasked to support ground units in training, and let's say my flight lead went down, they said, hey, press, go support that by yourself. In 122, they would say that. In 122. Okay. Go execute the mission. You're, you're a wingman. You're trying to go do this. Go do it. Right. In 533, we had a new section lead, and his wingman, who was a senior guy to him, his jet broke. And he's like, hey, can I launch go do this frag, cash frag without him? Yeah, dude, you're a section lead. You sh- you're responsible for other aircraft. You can launch. He's like, can you make sure the CO's okay with it? It's like, you're the one leading the flight. That's where it seemed like the, the growth was stunted because of the conservative nature. So junior guys were paired up with senior guys in the cockpit all the time. And it just drove me crazy because it seemed like it's done people's learning because you always had somebody senior to you around to be the one to make the decision. So the responsibility level wasn't driven to the lowest you know, person. It was held at the highest echelons. So if it's between you as a junior guy and somebody else as a senior guy, the junior guy had a tendency to kind of look over his shoulder and be like, what do you think? Instead of making the decision for himself. Exactly. Okay. And if you're a flight lead, you know, and that's what I always try to, if I'm, if I'm a wingman and I'm senior to you, you're the one making the decision, right? If you're the flight lead, yep. you're the one leading the flight. It's, it's your job. I'll speak up if something needs to be said, but you're trained, you're leading the flight. So lead the flight. And that was the biggest difference. Just the conservative nature that I showed up and how it, how it was handled and flying with Wizzos. Obviously that was different. And from, my discussion with, with Colonel Cedarholm, bloom where you're planted. I kind of took it on board that I didn't want to be the guy flying with Wizzos who, you know, if they might make a mistake, because the F-18 can be employed by one person, where I would just take everything from them and just do it myself. Because there were a lot of senior pilots in the 2C squadrons. But as soon as the Wizzos started making mistakes, they would just do everything themselves. Mm-hmm. And the Wizzos would not learn especially the junior ones. You know, they're the ones who needed to learn just like a junior pilot. And so I would hold them to a standard and make them do their job, which they're, you know, running weapon sensors, they're talking on the radio, they're doing all these things that can increase combat with combat effectiveness. I probably got a uh, reputation as a Wizzo hater. <laughs> no way, Daryl. <laughs> no, honestly, uh, I, can, I can speak candidly about this now is, no, man, you held them, one, you didn't, sugarcoat anything which is appreciated and there's no time for it but dudes knew like when they were flying with daryl they better have their shit together because daryl obviously can do this by himself so but i think it was good because like you said they're held to a standard as well and letting them off the hook or letting any pilot off the hook it doesn't help anybody so the standard needs to be maintained regardless but yeah we might they might i'm sure the wizards had some love for you on the side i'm sure well no one grows if you just do their job for them it's the same with a, a new section lead pilot or just a wingman pilot. If you don't let them go make their mistakes and do their job and learn from them, like I learned as a junior guy, 122, making mistakes in the real world, such scenarios, and I was allowed to learn from that and grow, then you just don't get better as a pilot. You don't get better as a wizard. You don't get better as a crew. And there was a tendency to, to not let those guys do that. Even, even young pilots, 
paired up with senior Wizzos, where this, you know, I'd, I'd go watch the tapes flying with them and listen to the comm that they have in their cockpit, and the, and the senior Wizzos just driving the pilot around. It's like, hey, I know you have all this. Say you've been doing this forever. You got two thousand hours in the jet. This guy's got like two hundred. Maybe let him learn some. Let him make those mistakes. Yes. Let him make those mistakes. I got you. So, but you got to in. So your initial hope was to go to Top Gun. It was. Yes. And then what happened in five thirty three? I got to go to Top Gun. How'd that happen? Luck of the draw. So that's one of the reasons I was kind of disappointed to go to five thirty three. Is they were. We kind of called them a black squadron because they only sent guys to MOTS. And the, the kind of the thing is the MOTS, Marine Aviation Weapons Training Squadron. Weapons and Tactics Weapons and Tactics Squadron. squadron. <laughs> you see how far I've been out of the Marine Corps. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, but you're still active duty right now. No excuse. Come on. I am. I have not been with the Marine Corps. Well, we're going to get into why Daryl hasn't been uh, super busy in the Marine Corps lately. We're going to finish that up with some fun questions at the end. But so, Art, you got to go to Top Gun, man. I got to go to Top I did, and it just happened. I showed up. I performed. I held myself to a standard, and I did my job as a pilot and as a ground officer for whatever ground job I had. And they had a, a MOT slot to go to the Marine Corps Weapons School, and they had a Top Gun slot. It was between me and another pilot, and he really wanted to be the training officer. And for the Marine Corps, you have to go to the MOTS to be the training officer. So he went to MOTS, and I went to Top Gun. And 533 hadn't seen a crew to Top Gun in like five or six years. So I lucked out in the fact that I got to go. And even better yet, to continue my tradition of being called a Wizzo hater, I got to go single seat. Mm-hmm. They did not I, have, dude, I remember this. They did not have a Wizzo ready to go with me to the point that I was like, hey, just put any Wizzo back there who's competent. We'll get them through the course with me. We'll get another patch. It doesn't make sense to send me by myself where I have to sacrifice two jets for three months. We have to sacrifice 20 maintainers to come with me. Let's get a second patch out of it. And they just couldn't make it happen. Yeah. And they were just loving sending you up with a, a, a back seat saved up. Daryl's just raging around in a two seat. Because when, when was that? That yeah. was 2015, summer of 2015. That's what it was. I was. You were at Top Gun when I got back from Second Tanks and I checked into 533. I remember you checked in. Uh, I think I saw you right after you checked in, you were changing in gym clothes. You're like, this two, th- two seat squadron is awesome. I get to go to the gym all the time. Yeah. Cause there's 40,000 people working yeah. there. It's great. So t- five thirty three, man. Cause you lucked out. You did top gun. You come back to five thirty three, and then we headed out. We did. We went to OIR together. Yeah. Operation inherent resolve. What did you, so that was a busy deployment compared to your deployment with uh one twenty two in Kandahar. What were some similarities and differences between those two deployments? I have to tell you, they're actually night and day. Okay. I mean, completely night and day. So Operation uh, Enduring Freedom, flying out of Kandahar. We were taking off in-country, flying for 10 minutes, getting overhead our working area, dropping bombs, having Marine Corps organic tankers working for Marine Corps JTACs, and flying three and a half, four-hour missions, carrying two 500-pound bombs, and that's it. Operation Inherent Resolve, we were transiting two hours into country relying on Air Force assets to get us there, working with mostly Air Force JTACs and carrying, you know, 1,000-pound, 2,000-pound bombs, bombs, doing pre-planned strikes. And, you know, in OIR, we were dropping bombs like crazy, just mm-hmm. left and right. In Afghanistan, we dropped maybe a quarter of the bombs, but we shot a lot, the gun a lot more. But we weren't dropping nearly as much. But almost every single mission was either with troops in contact or danger, danger close. Where Operation Inherent Resolve, it was just blowing up buildings left and right, finding things to kill. 
that there might not be a friendly unit within hundreds of miles because it's all controlled by UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, or RPAs, remotely piloted aircraft. Correct. I think it was a new term they used while we were there. With Air Force JTACs, you know, hundreds of miles away. Mm-hmm. So completely night and day different wars. Um, but they both had their their merits, and they were both very challenging. Do you remember we did a flight? I was your dash two, so you were leading. And we did a pre-planned strike into Syria, and I was calm out. I was Nordo, so my radios didn't work. Do you remember this one? I do, and that was a very good flight. I actually have a great picture that's on the my Wizzo at the time, Goat Backland. He was a great guy. That's on his, like, he had that picture on his binder going through University of Washington for his master's degree. Shout so, out to Goat. Very liberal school, and he has a picture of him dropping <laughs> bombs. And in the picture, it's a, it's a looking back GoPro. It has Susan here flying wing and our four 2,000-pound bombs coming off our jets. Where this guy hasn't talked to anyone for it was awesome. three hours. Dude, it was the most relaxing flight. But how did you... So this was the thing. Where I remember, you know, we're doing a pre-planned strike into Syria. And my radios aren't working. But my Wizzo, so Wizzo Love here, his radios, he can talk to you. I can't talk to anybody. I can't even talk to him. Yeah, you can't talk to him. Either. I can't talk to him. I can't talk to you. I can't talk to ATC. But we're when we're in the line before we take off... I'm like, dude, we're, I'm yelling. I'm just yelling in the jet. I'm like, we're going, you know, when technically based on, you know, the, the go, no go criteria, uh, we, we technically didn't make the go criteria. I was like, dude, there's no chance, man. If you can talk to him, I told goat, we're going, man. And, uh, do you remember what you did? What was the, so one, I didn't know that you couldn't talk in the line. I couldn't talk at all. I didn't realize that till we were airborne. But, but there's no way we were missing that flight. Like, sorry, bro. Jet's working. We got one working radio. We're going flying. I, mean, I don't think we had a spare at the time. Normally we had spares. We had very good maintenance at the time. But for some reason, that flight, we didn't have a spare. It might have been an extra 2,000-pound bombs. I can't recall. But yeah, you took off. Like, okay, he can't talk to anybody. Well, we're going to press. It's pre-planned, which means, you know, hours before we launch, they know what the target is. We, we're not... We don't even have to enter anything, anything in the jet. It's all done on the computers beforehand, downloaded the bombs. So all you have to do is fly formation, and when it comes Dude, time, drop the bomb, drop the, the bomb. The most relaxing flight I may have ever done. I didn't talk to anyone. I just relaxed, flew around. Like, wherever you went, I'd just fly some wing, remember my landing gear, and then you gave me the hand signal. So luckily, the, everything was going on time. And you knew where, where, where we're going to push from. And I look over, and you're right in cruise. And I was like, okay, well. We got hand signals, so I give you a three, two, one, drop the bomb. I look over, I think your bombs came off a split second because I'm betting you're like, is he giving me hand signals right oh, now? Oh, no, I, dude, I was on board, man. Boom, boom, two bombs. We drop bombs, they blow up, and we go home. Probably ate some uh, root beer floats or ice cream floats afterwards. Root beer floats was the, was the tradition after a mission, root beer floats. So that was a busy deployment. And then after 533... Or was it during 5.33 that you rushed the blues? It was during 5.33 it was during the blues. Talk about the process real quick. So we're going to get into, this is the, the the main effort here of this discussion. Why do you want to be a blue, first off? So I was born in the aviation community, right? Like I had seen planes like before I can remember. I grew up on an airport, jumping out of planes, flying up. And as a kid, I remember seeing Blue Angels. And that's when I was like, I want to go be a fighter pilot. I didn't know at the time the Blue Angels didn't carry bombs or drop anything. I was like, that's cool. I want to go do it. And from that point on, I, I can't remember how old I was. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. 
So that was my goal. I went through college. I did everything we talked about to go be a fighter pilot. And I got to the fleet and I was like, well, there's things I want to do. I don't think the Blue Angels is a realistic thing that I can, I can go do. But I want to be a competent tactical pilot. I want to go to combat and drop bombs and I want to go through Top Gun because that's what I viewed as the competent guys get to go do. Somehow I squeaked in under the radar to get to those. But in my first squadron, there was a senior first tour guy and he had done combat deployments. He had gone through Top Gun and he left that squadron, our squadron, and went to Blue Angels. Great flight lead, great guy. Um, taught me a lot as a junior guy. Um, he was actually the guy I flew with on my first um, strafe and bomb drop, that mission we were talking about earlier. And I saw like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And so the rest of the time in the fleet, that was in the back of my mind. It wasn't the driving goal of why I was doing things in terms of trying to get quals, trying to get a weapon school, trying to be a good combat, a good tactical aviator. But it was still something I wanted to go do. So I get to EWS, and I don't even have the qualifications. I'm like, well, if I want to do this, I'm going to do it right. And I started rushing from then. Because it takes you know, several times for some people to, to get selected. What do you mean rush? So by rush, you're applying to Blue Angels. We call it rushing. It's almost like you're rushing a fraternity, but a lot more professional. Okay. So by rushing, you, you put an application like you would for any job, you know, why you want to do this, resume, letters of recommendation. And then you go to a couple air shows to see what they do. But also so they can meet you, they can put a face to a name, they can get to know you. So you kind of, get, you, go, you show up, you go to their brief, you maybe go to a social engagement they do where they're, you know, talking to high school kids to see, like, besides the cool flying, this is also what they do. Mm-hmm. And then you go to a brief to see how they prepare for their flights. And at a certain point, in the rush season or the application season, they say, hey, there's like six of you out of 30 that we are going to bring down to Pensacola to interview, which is called a finalist or finalist week. So you're the six people for the remaining two slots. And then that's a formal interview. And then you go out, you meet everybody's family, you kind of do some more social events. Um, and then from there, they, they select somebody. So I started that all the way at Expedition Warfare School in 2014. And then you didn't become a blue until I didn't get selected until 2017. And this is where timing is either on your side or not. And timing is a lot, a lot of times not on my side when I, uh, in the moment, but in the long term it has been. So 2014, I rushed, I moved Buford to go back to the fleet to go to 533 and in the Marine Corps, when you move, you can't go apply to anything for two years. So I knew for two years that I couldn't rush the blues. I put an application the next year, didn't do anything. I just put it in, just say like, hey, I'm still interested. They probably threw it in the trash. Oh, whatever. It didn't show up to anything. 2016, where I could actually apply for the first time, we were on a combat deployment. And our CEO at the time, um, who I really respect, once I get back from Top Gun, he sat me down and he goes, hey, I know you want to go be a Blue Angel. You've talked to me about this. However, I can't, I want you to be my next training officer after our current one. I can't invest in you to go to Mott's to be our next training officer and be a Blue Angel at the same time because they're probably going to line up because I can't let you rush during a combat deployment. That's just not going to happen. It's like, of course, we're going to go drop bombs. That's way more important than rushing the Blue Angels. And so he's like, what do you want to do? 
like, I want to be a blue angel, sir. It's like, okay, cool. I'll do everything in my power to make that happen. Didn't hold it against me that I didn't even want to go to Mott's. Didn't want to be his next training officer. We went to go to the combat deployment, timing, and then get a rush. So now comes 2017, and I'm up for orders, so I'm moving. So essentially, I have one shot at rushing now, because once I move, that's it. That's it. You're done for another two years. And put my application, did the entire rush thing, ended up getting selected, which was... So the process, I mean, for you, it you started 2014. Yes. I think it's like 2017. But you really officially started rushing, I mean, where you had time, late 2000. So, gosh, we got back end of 2016, early 2017. Yeah, it was the 2017 season was when I got selected. But I, did, I was putting applications. I was reaching out to them the entire time to try to essentially keep a line of communication open. Again, not that they even consider me, but yeah. at least it says, hey, this guy's at least been interested and you keep the comm chain open. I got it. There, so, there were there was guys on the team that I was with. Uh, they rushed four times, like actually rushed. They were finalists three times before they got selected. Okay, and that kind of shows perseverance required sometimes to get what you want. I got you. So the selection day when you uh, when you get the phone call that hey Daryl, congrats, bro, you get to be a Blue Angel, man. I know uh, your wife Courtney. Who's, who's awesome. She likes to have a little fun with that. She's upstairs with the human right now. But uh, how did that go down, man? How did the, the the selection day or the rejection day go? Well, by human, I think you mean my daughter. Your daughter, yeah. Which, the, with me being a robot, we don't know if it's human or if it's an Android <laughs> or cyber. 50, I, haven't, 50, I haven't put that down. 50-50? Well, I mean, it's, it's a nerve-wracking phone call. I mean... But hang on. Yeah, I get it. Nerve-wracking. But... You guys had some fun with this. We did. Why don't you talk about the fun? Because there's either going to be a sweet phone call or a shitty phone call, but either way, you guys are going to have fun with it, which is really cool. You took it serious, but you also, you had some fun with it. You can never hold yourself too seriously. You, you know, go. you can never take yourself like, you can never put stuff such on a pedestal that it's going to make or break you in life. You right. have to roll with the punches. And so we, we, my wife wanted to have fun with it. And I, she's, 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 so lot, this is her idea. This is her idea. Okay. She's a lot funnier than I am. So she's a huge fan of The Bachelor or Bachelorette or whichever one it is. And so she made a little video, essentially, uh, I think it was Bachelor in Pensacola or something like that, and narrated it as I'm waiting to do this phone call into the Blue Angel CEO, um, which generally, if you're getting selected, the rest of the team is on the line. You just don't hear them. And so Dude, she, come on, man. More she said, detail. Yeah, what's, uh, what's the scene? Because the thing at The Bachelor or Bachelorette is you get a rose, yep. right? You give it a flower if you get to stick around, right? So, so come on, man. Don't don't shy out on the details. She set up a little table, put a video camera. <laughs> she put on a dress. I put on a suit. She put blue and gold roses around. I think there was a bottle of champagne just to really make the entire scene happen. Uh, and we do the calling. And I get the call. And you can kind of tell with these calls. So if it's very short and professional... You probably didn't get selected. Right. If they kind of mess with you about things you did and like, hey, this is why we didn't want to like you and, you know, drag it out a little bit, it's probably a positive thing. And so I could tell it was probably going positive. And at the end, you know. So you're standing in a suit. Standing in a suit. Next to this table of blue and yellow roses. Yes. Waiting for, so call phone call comes in. Put it on speaker. It's Blue Angel CEO. Talk to him. He's essentially telling me why I didn't get selected. (laughs) 
And then at the end, they welcome me to the team. And I'm like, oh man, this is amazing. Like, this is the last thing I want to do in the Marine Corps. This is, you know, everything I've been working for besides all the, the tactical stuff that I've done. This is, this is one of my dream as a kid. And I got selected. And I'm ecstatic. But I also have all this stuff going in the background. My wife's videoing it. And it's this, this funny bachelor parody thing. So we hang up and my wife's like, congratulations. And I don't know if she remembers it, but it's on the video. I'm like, well, you're going to give me a rose now? <laughs> Did you give him a rose? Nice. Well, blue or yellow? Which rose was it? Nice. A blue rose. Dude, congrats, Daryl. Yeah. So that was my selection video uh, that, that she made. That's way more fun. Even if you would have got shot down, it still would have been fun. Yeah. That's, see, that's a good time, man. Well, that video didn't see the light of day until she got a little, uh, she had a few drinks and sent it to other team members on oh, the Blue Angels. Nice. They enjoyed it. I, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. That's, that's ballsy there, Court. That's ballsy. Uh, by the way, Courtney's in the background. We're just yelling. So you got selected. Dude, what's it like initially getting into the Blues? I mean, you're a new guy again, and but there's not there. Also, there's not many Marines, right? I mean, it's, that's right. So, were there any other Marines on the team? There's a handful of maintainers. Okay. So the uh, C-130 maintainers. There's a handful. Of, there's maybe three or four Hornet maintainers, and then there's three C-130 pilots and Marines and me. They in the past have had more than one Marine F-18 pilot, but due to manning and everything, they're like you can only have one, and so I just happen to be that guy now. Maybe I was lucky because I was the, the only Marine that they, you know, I was maybe rushing against less people. I don't know. They, they don't have to take a Marine. But I was the only Marine that got selected. I was the only Marine there. So, yeah, you have to essentially represent the entire Marine Corps as the F-18 pilot on the team. Got it. What's the battle rhythm like as a blue? So when you show up, you hit the ground running. So you show up that week. You do a couple flights with the team in the back seat. You already have a blue flight suit doesn't have a number or anything. They already have it made for you. It's custom fitted. You get measured. How tight are those things? Very tight. Jeez, dude. Yeah. Like they look like freaking spandex. You get used to them. Okay. To the point that the uh, green ones just like, wow, this thing's like, too why I'm so skinny now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so comfortable. <laughs> but yeah, you show up, you do a couple flights, you see what it's about, then you're immediately on the road. And for the next two months, you're traveling with the team. So Thursday through Sunday, you're gone. And you maybe do a long trip where you're gone for three weeks and you're just on the road. Two days at home, one day off. Uh, sorry, three days at home, one of those days is off and you're just going. When you show up, when you sit down with the CO and the team, do they? is there an initial, hey, this is the mission statement of the Blues, this is the culture, this is, our, this is what we do here and what the, the, our service, what is that? So there's an expectation set from the get-go. So... Just like you show up into a fleet squadron, you check in with the CO. Except in the Blues, everything is regimented because they have so little time that everything is scheduled out way in advance. So you show up. Before you even show up, they know that on this day, at this time, they're going to do their CO check-in brief, their OPSO check-in brief, their public affairs check-in brief, all these. So your first day you show up in your, your service uniform, chucks, uh, service trolleys, and the navies are in their khakis, and then just off to the races. Okay. So they lay out the expectations. And then from there, um, you go. And a lot of the expectations that were laid out were essentially, it's not about you, it's about the team. Okay, gotcha. It's, you're, you're not special. You're here to represent something that's special. What are you representing? You 
have the unique opportunity to essentially represent every Marine and sailor that's out there. Because for a lot of America, you're maybe the only people from the Marine Corps and Navy they meet. And to remember that and take it seriously and essentially be the professional representation of that. They tell it like that's part of it. Obviously, the CEO is not telling you that, or did he? No, he is. Hey, Daryl, the Marine Corps is on your shoulders. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, the Marine Corps is going to survive without them, but you're the representative of the Marine Corps that people who have never met anybody in the Marine Corps might meet. Okay. That everybody in these small towns that you go to the air shows, they might never see somebody from the Marine Corps besides you. And so you might be the lasting impression. You might be the reason why this person joins the Marine Corps or Navy or not. That's fair. Or because we, the mission actually changed, your whole goal is not just recruitment, but to actually inspire culture, excellence, and service to country. So regardless of whether we inspired somebody to join the Navy or Marine Corps, we just want to make a positive impact on somebody's life to where they see, hey, all the hard work these guys put in to make this precision air show happen, if I apply you know, dedication, perseverance, teamwork, and accountability to myself, maybe I can you know, be the best at what I do, whether it's running a business, whether it's being a carpenter, whether it's playing sports, any of those things. I got you. Was there, a, was there anything specific you remember about that conversation with the CEO? You know, I wish I remembered everything that happened. I just, I just know we got sat down. We had a lot of briefs that day, and we were essentially told, hey, you are here to represent the Navy and Marine Corps. It's not about you. It's about the team. Very cool. Very cool. Because I heard that the, the number one recruiting tool for the United States Navy and naval aviation as a whole is the Blue Angels. I don't know the numbers exactly. I think I looked them up at some point. Yeah, they're a huge impact on recruitment. But again, that was not the mission that we were trying to support. Right. It was actually a huge weight, I think for me, but off the team when they didn't have to meet recruiting goals or be recruiters anymore. Because from now on, when I went and talked to high schools, instead of talking about, hey, this is why you should join the Navy or the Marine Corps, I don't have to talk about that. I just have to talk about, these are my experiences in the Navy and the Marine Corps. These are the lessons that you can learn and apply to your life mm-hmm. to achieve your own excellence in your own life. Was there anything that surprised you when you showed up? Something like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is the Blue Angels. I think it surprises everybody is the rhythm. Like we're talking about the battle rhythm. So it's just, it's go, 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 It's a go. sprint. It's a sprint the entire time. So you get there, you're off the ground running, you're, you're flying in the back seat, seeing what they do, but you're also traveling. And then as soon as you're actually officially the three pilot or the seven narrator or whatever, you are that position. Mm-hmm. And the day after you become that position, you're already training. I checked in in September. I think I actually officially became the three pilot in November. And the next day that I became the three pilot, I was flying. Is it normal to be usually, and again, correct me here, oftentimes a new guy shows up and he's the narrator? So there, there's a couple slots that are always new. And the three new spots for pilots. So there's a ton of ground support officers and there's a ton of maintainers that support you. But I'm just going to get to the pilots to start off with. So every season, there's either a new flight lead, a new left wingman, a new right wingman, a new narrator, or a new six pilot. So okay. That seems a little complicated, but I'll break it down. So every year, the narrator is new. He's a new pilot. He's the guy who goes advon, does pre-flight, uh, pre-site surveys for every show site, and narrates. But the narration is like the smallest amount of his, his job. 
His main job is setting everything up in advance for everybody. So when you roll one, you can just execute. The three pilot is always new because his, after his first year, his three he moves to four. So it's three left side? Three is the left wing. Three is left wing. Then every other year, you either have a new flight lead or a new right wingman or two pilot. They alternate. And then the seven pilot, who's a new guy, the next year he becomes a six pilot, the next year he becomes a five pilot. So in the demo of these six demo jets, there are three new pilots in that every year who are first year flying the demo. It's either the flight lead, the right wingman, the left wingman, or the six pilot. Oh, gnarly. So the battle rhythm surprised you. What about the battle rhythm? Was it the pace, the amount of stuff you guys do? Because you're flying two, potentially three times a day. So in training, you're flying more. And that's what, you know, the eye-opening when you get into training is like, this is a lot. So in winter training, we call it Pensacola winter training, starts in November, runs through December. You're flying twice a day, five days a week. And it's just go, 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 go. And then you get to El Centro. And now you're flying 15 times a week over six days with debriefs, you know, full two-hour debriefs in between each flight. Whoa, man. Those are some long days. They are, but they prepare you for the very precision flying that you have to do because they do, as, as a Blue Angel, you do the same thing every single day. It's the same show, little variations, different show sites. But the level that you have to perform to is extremely high. Okay, specifics. How close are you guys hanging out to each other when you're flying around? So in the fleet, people say, hey, I want you to be Blue Angel tight coming to this break. Right. Break meaning when you come into airfield, you come into land, you come over, you break away from each other. And I don't think they, no one ever knows <laughs> yeah, what yeah. Blue Angel tight is. Unless you're actually a Blue Angel. Yeah. Unless they see it. Um, so in the diamond, I was the three pilot and the four pilot. So left wingman and the slot pilot. And our closest sets, um, my head is 18 inches under the aileron hinge of the other aircraft. In human speak, what does that mean? So a foot and a half away from the wing of the other craft. And not just the edge of the wing. I'm talking about under the wing, about, about a third of the way up it. 18 inches, folks. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And you're hanging out there for a while. Well, for that set, we're actually only there for maybe one maneuver. Okay. But, you know, when we're doing loops, rolls, uh, flying inverted, I mean, we're still two feet apart, three feet apart. I mean, it's, it's fairly close. You, you look at the, um, the wingtips between the wingmen, especially when you're in the slot. You're doing loops. Slot, you're in the middle. You're in the middle. You're in the middle. I mean, they're right above you, and there's not a lot of room between them. Gosh, 18 inches. Gee, no big deal. So all those times I said, hey, Blue Angel, snuggle up in a Blue Angel parade, that wasn't even close. Like at, uh, in Bahrain at night, I remember you uh, snuggling up too close to a specific 04 and him not being happy about it. Thought you had too much wing overlap. I don't remember this. I do not remember this. <laughs> what was this? We came in as division for some reason. Uh, and there was, uh, you were snuggled up and there was a specific 04 who was not happy with how close you were flying to him at night. A pilot or a was pilot? It? I don't remember. It's all right. Ah, whatever. No worries. <laughs> I don't remember that one. So 18 inches apart. Jeez, man. Yeah, I think it's shorter than your arm. Okay. I don't know. No big deal. So this is something that you showed me from your HUD tapes that are, were kind of cool. You have a stopwatch, right? Yeah. Right in front of you. I wish I could tell you that I use that, but that's a solo watch. 
Okay. So the solo pilots use that to time their pattern. So when they turn in from four miles away from each other, they're actually looking at ground checkpoints and, and using the clock to see how many seconds they're off from each other. In the diamond, we don't use that very much. Okay. Give me some more specifics about the precision that's required. So I mean, when it comes to your standard, the, the standard deviation. So a, a, a couple of things with that. One, to fly, fly that precise formation, we actually have a modified control system where there's this actual, I mean, it's just four springs that are hooked onto a hook. And then the, the control stick has a hook on it too. You hook the spring to the stick, and now the spring takes 40 pounds of back stick pressure to hold level. What that allows you to do is make very precise, small movements. So they literally attach a weight to the stick. Yes. So it's harder to move, so you can move it slower. So you can move it more precisely. Because if you grab this, if you grab a stick in F-18, there's a little bit of slop in it. Mm-hmm. And if you want to descend, you have to push, and you don't really know when it's pushing. It's really weird. The best example is if you're in your car, you're driving with the steering wheel. You move it left and right, there's a little play, right? If you put the car into a turn, like a hard turn, you make little corrections. It does a lot because there's tension on it. Same concept. But now imagine that tension you have to hold is holding 40 pounds. Uh, I got you. I got you. So that's your right hand. That's your right hand. So you get big, big. Your right, right bicep is strong. Your right bicep, your right uh, forearm, and you actually get some weird calluses on your right hand from it. Okay, sweet. That's fun. Not only are you holding that weight, but the opposite of what we're taught as a pilot growing up, where we say, hey, be loose on the control, be relaxed, you're actually white-knuckling the stick the entire time. They're told, you're told to do that. You're told to do that. So your, your right arm is balanced on your, your leg. You're leaning into it to take essentially weight off, of, as much weight off as you can, but also stabilize it. And then you're white knuckling it the entire time. And what that allows you to do, again, counterintuitive, but if you hit turbulence, so your hand doesn't move. So when you get bounced around, you bounce around together and you're not moving your hand. And you're braced to hold everything as still as possible. So that's when you're flying together in formation. When the turbulence hits all the aircraft, everyone's white knuckling their, their jet. So when you guys, when the turbulence affects all the aircraft, it's all the same or as close to it as possible. You prefer everybody bounces together? Bounce together. So that way you don't yeah. bounce When you're 18 other. inches away from five other aircraft? And on top of that, on those really tight maneuvers, you're actually holding your breath, like bracing everything. So that way there's zero movement throughout the entire... So you're holding your breath, white knuckling the stick, 18 inches from five other aircraft. Yep. Dude, piece of cake. Piece of cake. When you actually got, when they're like, hey, snug it up closer. No, 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 closer. No, Daryl, closer. Right there, that's the spot. When you actually got to see what real Blue Angel formation was, how did you react? Well, again, I mean, like everything, there's a there's a training syllabus that goes to it, and there's a standard. So you actually start off, and you're like, oh, this is really far away. But that's in training, and you realize how terrible you are at it. And it's actually harder the further away you are with some maneuvers because you're so far outside, you know, down the pendulum. You get tighter and tighter. And I think the first time I got into what was probably – Tighter than any other form, any other team flies on the Diamond 360. And I was what we call outside the Lao. So the Lao is the, um, I don't remember the acronym, launcher. Don't remember. I don't remember. Then you put missiles on. It's, it's the wingtip. <laughs> the wingtip you put missiles on. It's the wingtip of the jet. Got it. And for the first training set, the first time I'm seeing this maneuver, they're like, hey, just go right outside the Lao. Essentially put it right above your head. And you get there and you're like, that's really close. And you want me to go 
about four feet that way and up a little bit. So it's eye-opening. And on that first set that you're doing it, you're actually flying closer than any other demonstration team flies. Not trying to knock the Thunderbirds. They claim to fly 18 inches apart as well. But if you go look at pictures between the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds doing similar maneuvers, you'll see a significant difference in how, how tight they fly. Got it. So is that what makes them, or one of the things that makes the Blues so successful, is the amount of, so the standard is so small, the training leading up to it, because they didn't put you in Blue Angel formation day one. They worked you into that, but also the, the preparation. Because so, you said all the, sh- all the shows are the same, right? So it's the prep, the brief, the debrief. So all the shows are the same, but you're always chasing perfection for every set you go. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually get to our tightest sets until like September, October of the show season, which is like the last quarter. There's a couple reasons. One, you have to develop the trust and the ability to fly that close together. Trust is a huge one that you can trust the people you're flying with. You know how they're going to react. You know what they're going to do. Um, it takes that long to develop the ability. Almost the entire show season doing the same thing every day. It also helps fight complacency. So we actually fly closer together to fight complacency because we're doing the same thing every day. But a big part of all this, besides just the basic training, where we go out and do the maneuvers, is every day we go out and before we do any maneuver, we go visualize it. So our brief, if a fleet guy watched our brief, they're like, this is the weirdest brief I've ever seen. This, none of this makes sense. Where's admin? Where's TAC admin? Where's you know, training rules? All this stuff. But the brief is essentially just a quick rehearsal of the show. So the CEO will sit down. We all sit down. It's very kind of regimented. It's almost ceremonial. And he'll, what we call do is pin fly. So every show site we have, we have Google Earth printed out imagery with what we call our lines. So it's essentially got like a spider diagram of all the lines, headings, and everything. And he'll pin fly the entire show. So he takes his pin and he's flying essentially what his ground path is going to be. And you would look at everybody else and they're doing the same thing with their pin. Now, as a three pilot, as a left wingman, I'm just looking at the flight lead the entire time. What do I need to pin fly it for? What do I need to know what the ground checks points are? But it's more of a mental rehearsal of what's going on. And then in certain maneuvers that you're going to do, you put the pin down, everybody pushes their chair back, you lower your seat, and you actually get into the position you're going to be in the jet. And you chair fly it as a team. So the flight lead is going through all the calm, and you're just visualizing a couple basic maneuvers each flight. So there's two maneuvers that we do as a delta that we chair fly together. Then we break into the solos, go do their own thing. The diamond does theirs. And the diamond will pick one or two more maneuvers to chair fly. And that visualization really helps kind of solidify you getting into the mindset for going out there and performing and flying your, to the best of your ability in that aircraft that day. But also thinking about every mistake you've made on that maneuver and your trend on that maneuver and how you can improve on it. Because it's always about improving on what you did the day before. Since we do the same thing every single day, over and over again, you know exactly how you're performing on each thing. Because it's, it's almost like a week that you kind of reach back because your performance changes so much from week to week. So that is, you're in a, like a boardroom? You're in, you're in a briefing room? It changes every single, everywhere we go. Because you're going to a different show and everything. So are you sitting there, you're drawing on a paper, the whole team, you're going through the route as the CEO, as the boss is going through all the comm. He's going through all the calm that he would, uh, it's an abbreviated version. He's going through all the maneuvers we're going to do on that show site. Okay. And then, so you're visualizing the whole thing. Do you do this before every single show? Before every single show and every single practice. So before every practice and every show, you literally sit down, visualize the whole show with the calm, and you literally draw out the route 
on your Google image print or Google Earth printout the entire in the same is it the same pace? Same pace, same everything. You could almost take a recording of the flight lead doing it and play it the next day and it's gonna sound almost exactly the same. Does boss change his voice, his tone, and anything at all, or is it always the same? He changes his tone during certain maneuvers. Mm-hmm. He has a cadence that you follow. But what's an example? Well, and I'm going to sound really imagine you're the boss, yeah, Daryl. So we go on what's called a cadence. And so, for example, if we're going to do a loop, he's going to say, "Up we go," a little more pull, except he's going to put some voice inflection into it. And so on up we go on the G, we're all going to start pulling and then we're going to pull all the way through. He says a little more pull. And if he draws out the, the pull, so pull, you know, we're going to keep pulling until he stops. And so we're following those small cadences in his voice inflection. And because we're such a tight knit team, we're the same guys, 300 days a year. We're doing, you know, we're flying together six days a week. You can tell in somebody's voice when something's different how they're performing, what's going on, uh, how we're working together as a team. And it can impact what you're doing. And that's one of the reasons why we try to, um, I wouldn't say it's forced optimism, but one of the Blue Angel tenants is almost habitual op- optimism. So we always try and sound upbeat on the radio. We always try to fire each other up. We always try to be optimistic about what we're doing. And if you listen to a brief, there's a lot of that in there. We always say, hey, we're fired up, ready to go at the end of everything we say. And it's kind of, you know, if you look at it from the outside, it's kind of weird, but you know, maybe you're having a bad day. Maybe you're a little off day, but if you walk into a room and everyone you're working with is ready to go and they are psyched to be there, your bad day is going to go away really quickly. The same thing when you show up to maintenance in the blues, you'll, you'll think they're messing with you the first time you do it. You walk into maintenance control, which is where all the maintainers are that kind of make sure the aircraft are ready to go. They make sure everything's good for the flight. You're signing for the jet. You're, you're accepting, hey, this is my jet. You walk in there and you walk in, they all just start like cheering and clapping. And it's not like they're clapping for you. They're clapping because, and they're cheering because they're excited for the show to go on, but they're trying to inject that optimism in there. And you think they're messing with you, but then you realize it's not just injecting that optimism to you, but it's to them as well. They're psyching themselves up. They're making themselves ready to get everything done. And they're, they're, it just fires everybody up, makes everybody super happy to be there. Again, if you showed up to a squadron and everybody was just super psyched to be there because all they had to do was fly, work on jets, and make sure they flew, it would be a huge impact to how you performed. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be cool. So the visualization, man, did you notice, had you ever done that before? Had you ever sat down and just nerded out so much on, you know, chair flying a mission, going through the comm, Emergency procedures, because emergencies also happen when you're flying formation 18 inches from each other. What was the general guidance on what do you do when something goes south and we're hanging out in formation? So when it comes to visualization, I never took it to the level of the Blue Angels. We did on the Blue Angels where every single flight, every single day we're visualizing stuff. But in flight school, I actually started chair flying in T-45s. I had a really bad flight. Flight school went pretty, fairly smooth for me. Um, and I had one, ba- I had a bad flight attack form flight where you're first learning how to fly dynamically in formation. And I didn't want to have another bad flight. So from that point on, I actually started chair flying. I'd sit in my little office chair that spun and like do this stuff. So it kind of stuck with me. I did the same thing going through Top Gun flying BFM every single day. I was like, this is what I need to do. But then I get to the blues and it's like, yeah, I mean, there's like 
30 maneuvers you're chair flying it just to just to learn them over and over and over again um funny story you're talking about a, a bad flight i tried to spin to do a spin in the old uh t-34 with my landing gear down that's it's frowned upon to do a spin with your landing gear down i'd imagine and the uh the marine instructor in the back was uh he was like he was literally holding the landing gear handle down so i didn't try to lift it up because i was trying to overspeed the gear the whole time dumping the nose trying to pick up speed i'm like yeah we got some headwinds here man these headwinds are really strong and he's just like yeah headwinds he's a marine sea with 30 pilot so i went through my whole checklist you know the checklist you do before a spin and this is just down the street we're in pensacola and I'm like, man, I don't know. These these winds are just really strong. I can't I can't get fast enough to spin. And then I look over and the landing gear is still down. And I my I kind of died a little bit. I think I died a little bit. And he's like, and I said, hey, I think I'm gonna try with the landing gear up now. And he's like, you know what? That's a good idea. And I was uh I was hijacked at the time. So this was during my check ride, by the way. Bring the landing gear up, we do the spin, cool go land and i'm just like that was a fail 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 and uh, it turned out it wasn't as terrible as i thought and he called me the next day after i'd soloed next day was a solo and he's like hey hijack how you doing this is major so-and-so hey sir what's happening he's like hey did you uh do you remember to bring your landing gear up today when you flew i'm like i did sir he's like hey congratulations that was it so Good stuff. Uh, so, so you're saying he let you learn from your mistakes. He let me learn from my mistakes. And he didn't need to beat me up. There was no, I, I was, I wanted to just, if I could have just jumped out of that airplane, sends parachute and just augured myself into the dirt, I would have done it. So he didn't need to crush my soul, but he recognized that. There's so much you can get. I would almost say more so than a sim. Mm -hmm. You can just sit there, concentrate, visualize, and just go through everything that's going to happen and just see the performance in your mind of what you're going to do. In terms of emergencies, if you have emergencies, you know, you chair fly those on your own. You kind of talk about what you're going to do if you have an emergency. But if something happens airborne, I mean, you're in the middle of a loop, you have an engine failure or something happens, you just kind of gracefully leave the maneuver and go away. The, the, the show continues. You switch up to talk to guys on the ground, comm cart, uh, the flight doc, he's down there, he'll break out the book. And he'll actually just back you up in the emergency. You'll come and land. And you'll land. And five minutes later, you'll be taking off again in another jet. So you'll land, taxi the line. They'll have a spare there waiting. There's a maintainer who's already started the spare. You'll get out. You'll sprint to the other jet. You'll hop in. You'll put your hands on the canopy bow. And they actually strap you in like NASCAR style. So you'll have a maintainer on each side of the, on the, of the wing or Lex. And they're hooking everything up, making sure you're good to go. They climb down the ladder. You start the left engine. And you go take off. That's pretty cool. And I mean, less than five minutes from landing to back airborne, right back into a show going. And That's I, legit. Have you got a chance to do that? Many times. So you you had an issue, landed, jumped into the spare, got airborne, and joined back in the formation. Yep. Dude, that's cool. Man. And there's there's a couple things that happen with that. You know, One, you have to make sure you're mentally caged to take off. You're going through all your checks. But two, there's a lot of trust on the maintenance personnel. Totally. To make sure that jet's good to go. They've started everything up for you. They've tested everything. Because, you know, you could be taking off and two minutes later doing a, you know, seven and a half G maneuver at 200 feet. Jeez. That sounds like a good time. So that is, 
the application of the visualization. Is that something that you would consider one of the keys to success for the Blue Angels? I would. I mean, that's a key to how to perform well. Yeah. That's that's a key to performing at a high standard every single day. And and part of the driving force behind the reason you chairfly, the reason you visualize is you want to succeed as a team, right? And so you're trying to build the trust among your teammates that you're doing everything you can to make sure this team succeeds, whether that's on the ground or in the air. And in the air, a lot of that is your performance. And so you want to perform at the top of your game, so you're going to chairfly. And it, again, it extends beyond just the brief. So on the road, my general routine when it came to show day, so our two show days, our morning routine is generally chill. You don't have anything in the mornings. You might go work out. But the only thing you have that day is actually going to the show. But before I left for the airport, I'd actually sit down in my flight suit before I left the hotel and chair fly the maneuvers. I know like, hey, we might not be doing this as a team today, chair flying it, but these are the things that I know I've been messing up. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure I nail them. So I'm going to chair fly these three maneuvers in my hotel room. Dude, that by myself with my eyes closed, looking like a weirdo. Yeah. But it's how you, how you develop good habit patterns, how you reflect on the mistakes you made and how you progress from those mistakes. Flat out, uh, was talking to a good friend recently and she's a salsa coach. So I decided to learn how to learn salsa dancing recently. So looking like a total fool, dance around your living room by yourself, chair flying. You're chair flying, you know, walk, close your eyes, visualize the the movements, everything you guys did in the blues. And it reminds me back in the day, we drew a chalk runway on our driveway and we would walk around with our arms out, you know, like wings, me and my roommates. And we would make our comm calls in the landing pattern with our arms out, walking around our chalk driveway or our chalk runway on the driveway. And the neighbors is this older couple and they were, they had like, they were from Germany or something. And they thought, we were just out to lunch. Like these guys are just something's wrong with them. Well, I mean, so the blue angels, you know, is like, Oh, they're, they're doing all this special stuff, but it's all stuff that we're actually taught as a pilot early on. There's a point in the narration. They talk about these are basic combat techniques taught to every perspective, naval aviator. They're not, they're air show maneuvers, Mm -hmm. but how we get there is stuff we learn early on as a, as a pilot in in the Navy or Marine Corps, right? That visualization is the same thing we're doing. We're just taking it to a, a higher level every single day and using that to enhance performance. Do you think you would have, do you think the blues and the performance on a daily basis would be to the level it is had you guys not visualized what you're doing on a daily basis? I don't think we'd hold ourselves to as as tight of a standard. I think the standard would, would be less. I think you'd probably have more maybe touches, Mm -hmm. maybe more. Wait, what's a touch? You know, like maybe the, the canopy touches the wingtip. So maybe two airplanes bump each other. Very, very gracefully. Gracefully bump. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't happen a lot. A graceful bump. But that's consistent, man. You had mentioned, like, that's a real thing. If you read about athletes, your high performers, your NASCAR drivers, like those who operate in a dynamic environment under high stress consistently, visualization is a key part. I mean, SEALs brief to detail. So, Fighter pilots brief to detail. Like there's, it's consistent across a lot of avenues. Yeah, everybody in the high-performing category like that briefs to those deep. Now, obviously, the SEALs are doing, you know, extremely different stuff than we do with mm-hmm. significantly different consequences. But in the end, the consequence, whether you're putting a, you know, F-18, which weighs, what, 40,000 pounds and can go, you know, 
Mach 1.8. We don't go that fast in the air show, you know, 18 inches apart or you're kicking it on door. The ultimate result of the worst thing that could happen is somebody ends up dying, right? We don't want that to happen. And so that's the first reason why we do it is for safety. The second reason we do it is performance and to ensure we are operating at the highest level we can. And we even got the opportunity to, it was actually a, a very unique situation we got, we, we were allowed to do. We got to go talk to the Patriots. Yeah, dude. Talk about that, man. That was, that was cool. It, it happened randomly and actually ties into the SEALs. I got a call from a former teammate, not a teammate, a squadron mate from 533, mm-hmm. who, was a, who was a great leader in that squadron. And he was working with the SEALs as a JTAC, an air officer. He's like, hey, uh, our operations officer is going to give you a call. He, he wants to run something by you. I'm like, why are the SEALs calling the Blue Angels? Like, we're, we work in completely different worlds. They are doing, like, super, the most real-world stuff you can do yeah. every single day. And we're doing which, which SEAL team was this? It's uh, DevGrew. A special team. Most people think of them as SEAL Team 6. SEAL Team 6, I think. Got it. So you got a call from SEAL Team 6. From their ops. And he's like, hey, uh, I want to run something by you. Would you guys be willing to go talk to the New England Patriots about leadership and performance. I'm like, oh yeah, we would, but this is a weird phone call being from the SEALs. It's like, oh, I did a leadership exchange there. Uh, they reached out to me. They're looking for some new ideas because they're always like, they're New England Patriots. They're always looking to succeed. I was like, yeah, we'll try to make it happen. And obviously they have a busy schedule. We had a busy schedule and their off season is in the middle of our show season. And again, we take visualization and compartmentalization and concentrating on flying a safe and good air show very seriously. So it took some jumping through hoops to make it happen. But we were going up to New York and we stopped in Providence on the way to go to, um, I can't even remember what their field's called, Fox. No, that's Gillette Stadium. Gillette Stadium. Gillette Stadium. It's in uh, Foxborough, Massachusetts. Yeah. So we land in Providence, Rhode Island. And again, super professional organization that you would expect from a high level NFL football team. We, sh- we land and there's a van waiting for us. We hop in and most com- we call them commits where we go and talk to a high school or talk to a, a company or we talk to somebody about what we do as a team, you know, how we visualize stuff, how we, how we treat trust and accountability and humility and all these things that allow us to do what we do to fly a couple inches apart from each other and put on an air show. You know, you show up, you handle maybe a CD or DVD or a thumbstick with what you want on it. Well, they had gone that stuff beforehand. And normally you show up to these things and, you know, you have to set some stuff up before you get going. We get off, off their bus, we walk into their stadium, and it's like, hey, you got to start talking now. Like, we are in tight schedule. Like, I walk into their auditorium and the, the seven or eight of us that, that go to this, and their entire off-season team in August, they're about to make their cuts, is in there already. That's a lot of people. With a lot of people, it's like 80-something people. Right. Bill Belichick, Tom Brady are sitting in the front right there. I'm like, what are, you know, we had, we rehearsed what we were going to say. We had, we had figured out what we were going to say at a time. I was like, am I really going to go tell the New England Patriots how to visualize stuff and how to, how to, how to enact accountability and trust and leadership? But you'd be surprised. We gave our talk. We chatted some things we talked about and not one, this was after a practice. Not one single person was like nodding off. You know, I would expect after a hard practice, somebody would be a little tired. Not one single person was on a cell phone. And in the end, we had dozens of questions in range of like how we visualize stuff, how we treat fear, how you treat combat versus training. All these questions I would never expect to get from all the talks I get, you know, you, you get a handful of questions, maybe like three or four. One question after another, 
has that just shows that they were looking for whatever edge they could get to be better. As good as they were, they wanted to be better. And they're willing to listen to anybody who thought they might be able to give them an edge to perform better than next season. That's cool, man. There's some humility there. A ton. Yeah. And again, I, I, it's like, I don't know what we're going to tell these guys that they already know, but they were willing to listen and they were willing to sit there and pay attention and try to find something that they could use to perform better in their next season. What did you speak on at that part? Oh man. I have to, I think I blacked out during that. Dig in, dig into the, the, the archives. Yeah, I think I talked about how we build the trust between team members okay. to perform to the level we do. What'd you say? I just kind of, uh, the, the main one I talked about, because I was the training officer at the time, it's kind of how we build up the training cycle, how we start from wide, just get tighter and tighter, and what we do to gain the trust of each other. And it comes down to accountability and the debrief. So every single flight we do is a debrief. And it lasts for about an hour, hour and a half, and you're going over every single maneuver in detail. And one of the examples is, if you watch a show from the ground, you might see like random smoke go off here and there from a jet and just think their smoke's not working or maybe they're an afterburner or something. But it's actually the pilot turning the smoke off themselves. And they're doing that for a couple of reasons. One, to show their out of position. Two, it kind of marks the tape so we can go back and look at the tape to figure out why they're out of position. And lastly, to hold yourself accountable to your teammates that, hey, I am out of position. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not performing the level I need to. And regardless of how many people are watching, I'm going to turn my smoke off so we can debrief it later. So you're calling yourself out in the middle of a show. So in the debrief, you can share with the rest of the guys on the team, hey, I jacked this up. I got to get better. Let's all learn from this. Here's what I screwed up. Here's how I can improve. Or and you're doing it publicly, publicly in front of, well, during the the flight itself, you're doing it in front of how many people are watching. You could be, I mean, if you're in San Francisco, it's hundreds of thousands at a right. time. But more important, you're doing it for your teammates to know they they know you're going to hold yourself accountable to a standard. Dude, that is some serious humility right there, man. Hey, you're, <laughs> hey, I'm screwing this up right now. <laughs> right now, I'm really screwing this up. Let's check it out later on. And uh, man, that's really cool. Holy cow, I did not know that. It's also a good learning because what you'll see is if maybe one person's smoke goes off, it's like, oh, that might guy's messed up. But if you see three of the four people in the diamond, the wingman smoke go all off at the same time, it's probably the flight lead who maybe did something. No kidding. So you can tell kind of the ripple effect of as the smoke goes off and on, who's messing up. And, and you can actually see the repercussions down the line because if we're flying what's called echelon, I'm using my hands right now for everybody who can't see, but we're stacked. Daryl's using his hands, everyone. We're stacked in a line. So instead of a diamond formation, you know, we're all one, two is flying off one, three is flying off two, four is flying off three. If two messes up, his smoke's going to go off, but you're going to quickly see three and four smoke go off because maybe they can't hold the formation because he's bobbling around. So it's, it goes down the line where you can see everyone's accountable, even boss. I mean, boss is... Well, his smoke never goes off. Okay. And it's not because he's not being held accountable. It's because he's just flying his jet. And we can figure out what he's doing wrong if you see all of our smoke go off at once. Because obviously, all three wingmen or five wingmen, if we're in Delta, didn't just mess up all at once. Right. Every All five jacked. You know, okay, I got you. Do you remember a time that's kind of cool? So the humility connection, 
Boss is leading the show, senior dude. And he's normally an 05, is that right? He's normally an 05, generally about to pick up 06. Based okay, so he's been around. This guy's got some experience, whoever it is. Well, I mean, I can tell you my last, my my only boss I generally, I worked for in the Blues, never left the cockpit, had 4,000 hours in fighters, top gun instructor, commanding officer of a squadron previously, mm-hmm. and flew the F-22 with the Air Force. Okay, not bad. A little bit of experience there. Not bad but he would call himself out if he needed to. Every single debrief, he's calling himself out. He is sitting there as a 05 about to pick up 06. Former weapons school instructor, former commanding officer. He's getting trained by two Navy lieutenants when he's learning to be the flight lead. And there's no excuses. He's just sitting there. Yeah, I'll fix that. Yep, I'll fix that. It's almost like the uh, paddles is always right. Paddles, you know? sure. He's listening to them like they're paddles. He's going to take whatever they say to heart and fix it. I say that not being a boat guy and not really knowing paddles. No, does. no, it's okay though. No, but he was, he recognized, and that's, you know, key leadership character, characteristic. The dude's been around. He's done, you know, check all your boxes as a Navy fighter pilot, but still coming back to be the boss of the blues. He knows he's actually the new guy again. He's the new boss. So he is, his humility. So he had to show up just like every single one other new guy. Mm-hmm. He showed up, put on his khakis. Did all the new guy stuff we did was treated the exact same until he became officially part of the team. He put on the blue flight suit, but as a pilot, was a new guy. Right. He still led the squadron. He was still the commanding officer of the squadron, responsible for everything out there. But when it came to the flying, big ears, little mouth. Big ears, little mouth. Good quote. Good quote. Awesome man. I like that Patriots thing. That's really cool. They had a whole bunch of questions. Do you remember any that stood out? I think the biggest that one stood out was actually, I think he was a lineman. He had to be a lineman. He was a big He's dude. gigantic. His question was, how, you, how do you deal with fear? And that's something I never really thought about because I never, I don't think I recall experiencing fear as a fighter pilot in any of the things I did. I, I, I've thought about fear of failure of letting my team down, whether it was on the blues or in the fleet. I've had apprehension launching on a flight, but never in combat. It was more in training. Like I wasn't prepared for a flight, for a workup flight or something like that, but never remember being afraid or having fear during a flight, even in combat. Again, different war that, that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. The CEO at the time, he had been in the, the kickoff of OIF, the, the, the push into Iraq in 2003. He had been shot at by SAMS. And so he, he had a great answer to that question. He's like, hey, you know, whether it was training or combat, whether it was getting shot at at night over Baghdad, you might be afraid, but you, you just fall back on your training. If you're trained to a standard and you know what you need to do, you go back to that and everything will work out. You guys practice, right? The game is no different from practice. If you fall back on everything you've trained to do and you handle it, there's no reason to be afraid. Legit. Well said. As you're, you know, saying this stuff i'm thinking i'm like i'm trying to think was i ever afraid and i think about the stuff of you know you you're never afraid at least you know the dudes we flew with like in our in our circle of people in our culture you're never afraid for yourself it's not about oh what happens to susan or what happens to daryl it's i hope i don't let down the jtec you know or you know the dudes kicking in the door whatever it is like the, the fear is not it's not self-preservation fear it's fear of like you said letting down your teammates that kind of thing yeah, and 
the guy I think was asking about personal fear. And again, that's why I don't think we experienced the only times I can think of actually maybe being afraid or uh, terrified or something like that. Like you said, there were the 30 seconds between hitting the pickle button on a JDAM or a GB 12 and the impact, hoping yeah. it goes to the right spot. And those guys on the ground get the bombs they need. When you age 12 years in 30 seconds. Yeah. That's, that's real. Dude, good blues discussion, man. That's really cool. So part of the blues, and this was, everyone sees the air shows. Everyone sees you guys zipping around, flying crazy close to each other, all that stuff, especially here in Pensacola. But that's only a part of it. I mean, you guys go to schools. You do speeches. You do a whole bunch of other stuff, man. So aside from, you know, hanging out with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, you know, and the Patriots, was there anything, any other experiences from that side of the blues that kind of resonates with you? So the, the Patriots discussion, I mean, that's just like one small thing that happened. Mm -hmm. It was pretty crazy that they would want to learn from us, but compared to everything we did, that was a small, like one of the smallest things that I got to go do. One of my favorite things was, again, going to high schools. And the air show and flying the demonstration gave us the credibility to go to high schools and talk to people. Now, depending on where we went, maybe they had no idea what we did, but we showed a video beforehand. But you wanted to talk from a place of credibility because our mission was no longer recruiting. Our mission was to inspire a culture of excellence and service to country. And service to country doesn't have to be in the military. It could be to your community, to your neighborhood, to your, to your family. So I got to go and talk about how I view making yourself a better person so that way you could strive towards excellence in whatever you do. And I relied on my personal experiences of being a fighter pilot, as well as my experiences growing up. And again, since we didn't have to recruit, you could tailor your message to whatever you want to do. And my two main points of my message was, or were, personal accountability and essentially holding yourself to a standard or discipline. I guess they're the same things if you want to talk about those. And I, I would talk about how I developed those growing up. The two sports I did that had a big influence, skydiving and wrestling, to give myself personal accountability and responsibility for my own actions and discipline because it was all on me. How that related to being a fighter pilot. What do we do every single, after every single flight, Susan, as a fighter pilot? Debrief. Debrief. And what's the last thing you want to do in a debrief? Um, you're sitting in the debrief. When they call on you for your debrief points, when you get done rattling them out, what's the last thing that you want to have happen? Uh well, for me, it was, it was usually, well, I screwed this, these 14 things up on this flight today, but you got to call yourself out. And, and what I always view is the last thing I want to have to do after I call myself out on like 14 points is to have the flight lead or somebody else say, oh yeah, there's also these 10 things. And to me it was, well, I'm either too dumb to know I screwed those things up or it seems like I'm trying to make excuses or hide those mistakes. So I would kind of talk about those things and then how they relate to the Blue Angels, the smoke that we did, and, and essentially try to tell these kids like, hey, you're responsible for your actions. You're responsible for your future. Take accountability for it. Strive to be excellent. And whatever you want to do in your life, strive to be good at it and hold yourself accountable to it. Nice, man. How they react, I mean, usually. It depends. Yeah. A lot of, um, again, you're talking to maybe- High school kids. High school kids. Yeah. So- I would try to get down to the audience and, and, and ask people, you know, people would ask questions. I'd try to answer the questions. I'd try to ask people, you know, what sports they played. And, you know, I, I would try to relate it to how they act or what teams they were on. Um, 
you know, you, I would say, I would like to say I reached everyone. I, I think I'd probably, of everyone I talked to, I'd probably maybe only reach 10%. But if I can make a difference in that 10%'s life and how they view themselves going forward, to me, that makes everything on the blues worth it. So key takeaways, jump out of a plane, start jumping out of planes when you're 11 and wrestle. Yeah. Right? Do things that are hard, uncomfortable, and could hurt Straight, you. Dude, we got to get David Goggins on this thing, man. <laughs> you guys would get along. You guys would get along. All right, cool, man. So we're in the we're gonna, we're gonna finish it up here shortly. What was something you took away from the blues? Obviously, there's a ton of stuff, man. But if you got a if there's a cornerstone that you want to pull from the blues that you took into, well, into the the current chapter you're in as a uh, dad, what's something you took away, man? So I would say there's probably two things I took away: communication and trust. You develop those and whatever team you're on, you're going to succeed. And it goes back to my first fleet tour. Trust at the lowest level. Trust the guys, the junior guys, to do the job you've trained them to do. Whether it's whatever you're doing, trust the guys you've trained to do their job and they'll succeed. And communicate with them. And the biggest part of the communication is why we're doing something. An example of that is in the fleet where we're not in combat all the maintainers, the guys who bust their asses on the jets, they don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. But in combat, they see bombs coming off jets and they're going to bust their asses to make those, those jets work. On the blues, the maintainers we have see us flying the demo overhead where they're working every single day. They know that the jets they're working on, we're going to take off and immediately go up and do a loop and end up at 200 feet. So they are trusted at the lowest level to make huge impacts on the team. And then where I take that to my current life as being a a new father is trust communication to build teamwork with my new family. Right. I'm in a fortunate position where I got hit by a car, broke a bunch (laughs) of stuff. So I have a lot of time to spend with my wife and my daughter, Uh, but we can't succeed as a family, even though we have a lot of time, if we don't work as a team to take care of our new daughter. So you apply a team atmosphere and mindset to being parents. I tried to try. I think I do. We'll see my wife winning the war right now. I think our daughter is. Yeah, she's definitely winning. <laughs> That's awesome. Man. She's uh, she uh, she gets away with it because she's very cute. So I literally wrote down this this question. It's it's a question. What tactics from your aviation experience do you apply as a dad? I mean, the thing is, what I was just talking about. Yeah, communication, the, the communication, trust, and teamwork. Everything we've talked about, whether it's aviation, being on the ground. If you apply those things, your team's going to succeed. Okay, so the team is the Mullins family. The team's the Mullins family. I, oh. So it's, I mean, you're, it's two V one, man. There's only one small human in the house. Yeah. But she's, uh, she's an AR two threat. She's, she's shooting things out all the time. She's advanced weapons, advanced weapons, advanced tactics. Yeah. Got it. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know who the, I don't know who the flight lid is. Hulk yeah. Around. I mean, no one knows who's in charge. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Nice. Good stuff. All right, man. So that's freaking awesome. All right. Speed round. This is, this is the final, final part that's unscripted. By the way, that's what the drinks are for. So, Daryl, you recently jumped in front of a motor vehicle. Is that accurate? That's what people would say. People would say. So, hang on a second. First question. How many times have you been run over by a motor vehicle while riding a bicycle? Twice. Twice. And from the first time you were run over by a motor vehicle to the second time, what was the the time span? Well, those are different. So, the first time I wrecked my my, my bicycle and hurt myself. Okay. The second time, three months later... Once I recovered from a surgery, I was uh, hit in the forward quarter 
I was going about 35 miles an hour and the car was probably going about 25. So 60, if you do the math. Yeah. And uh, how much titanium did they pull out of your body? Well, they just pulled about 90 grams out of my back, which doesn't sound like a lot, but titanium is pretty light. So it was about eight inches of rods and 16 screws. Okay. So you suck at not hitting cars with a bicycle. I'm terrible on two wheels. You put me in a plane, I'm good all day long. Yeah, but put two wheels? A, you put me on a parachute? On a sidewalk? Put me on a bicycle? Terrible. Terrible. So Daryl can be trusted flying 18 inches from five other aircraft going, what would you guys, 350 average? Yeah, around 350, 360. Most 350. So miles per hour, that's four. 400 miles an hour. 400 miles an hour. So 18 inches away from five other aircraft while going 400 miles an hour. But he can't be trusted riding a bicycle and not running in front of a motor vehicle. Yeah, those uh, those cars driven by cycle lieutenants are dangerous. <laughs> on base. On, on base. base. Gosh, dude. So you have a bionic left arm now? Kind yeah, of. so my left arm looks like a bear attacked it. It looks like... I, and what do you tell people? A bear attacked it. So you fought a bear. I fought a bear. I What's won. the story? Well, I fought a bear. Where? Out here, out back. In there's tons of black bears. No, dude, that's not going to There's tons it. of black bears out here. You're not going to fight a black bear. That's a grizzly bear. That's a grizzly bear attack right there. So that's what I tell people when they see it. But, uh, then I go in the real story. So yeah, my left arm, essentially my entire humerus, which is... It's a bone. That bone right there, essentially where your bicep is, yeah. is entire plate of titanium with a bunch of screws in it, holding it together. Okay. I'm going to... I want That picture of all the titanium that yanked yeah. out of you, which is gnarly. Uh, so you're Wolverine, kind of. I wish I had the healing ability. I have the metal, but you not the, the metal, but ability. no healing. Okay, no worries, man. Dude, good stuff. So just, if you see Daryl riding a bicycle, just go the other way. Because he can't be trusted. Well, uh, my wife says I'm banned from them. Even right. in Key West. Is that fair? He's he's banned from bicycles. <laughs> but he can fly airplanes. What about jumping out of airplanes? Is that legal? Okay, so you can jump out of airplanes, fly airplanes, but you can't ride a bike. No, but I've actually never been hurt skydiving. Okay, you better knock on this wooden table. Otherwise, the Mullins family's going five for five. Because it's four for five life flights right now. It is. I mean, that was my first That was my first ambulance ride. Do you guys joke around about that stuff at Christmas? Oh, we, we are worse than a fighter squad. That's, our jokes. So it's, it is dark humor. Very dark humor. So, hey, remember when you forgot your parachute and crashed into the ground but barely lived? I mean, that was my little brother twice. My youngest brother twice. Jeez. Okay, man, we're going to finish it up. Dude, thanks. Uh, so, first off, Courtney, thank you for the hospitality and for refilling our beverages. Fun stuff, man. Good chat. Yeah. Always a pleasure. At this point, I turn it over to you for closing thoughts. Any saved rounds? Any last minutes? Uh, just awesome thoughts from Daryl Mullins. I mean, I have a lot of Susan shenanigans I'd like to tell, but I'll hold off on those. No, we'll, re we'll reminisce over dinner. Um, I mean, everything I've just kind of talked about, um, you know, if you, the, the, the kind of big things you, if you trust the people you train to do their job and you hold people to a standard, your team will succeed. It's that simple, but it requires both those elements, trusting them and teaching them to the standard you want them to execute at. You got to hold people accountable. But you got to trust them. Right. Awesome. But no matter what you do, whether it's business, whether it's the military, whether it's whatever you do in your life, you have to develop that though. And it's up to you generally what that standard is if you're in that position. Like let's say you're running a business, like mm -hmm. a coffee business. Mm -hmm. You got to develop what standard it is. You got to hold that standard. You got to hold people accountable. Cool. All right. Best thing about being a dad. Go. 
Smiles. Smiles. Smiles from your daughter. Worst thing about being a dad. Sleep. <laughs> yeah. Or the lack of it. The lack of it. I love it. I, uh, I had a good chat with a buddy of mine who's got a, a small one. He's like, dude, they're like seer school instructors, man. They don't let you sleep. They're terrible. You never sleep. So I love it, man. Awesome, dude. I got nothing else, man. You got anything? No, I'm glad to be here, Susan. Fun stuff. All right, Susan and Daryl, right here, folks. See ya.